For exclusive Danger Close merchandise and all things Jack Carr, be sure to head over to jackcarusa.com. Get exclusive gear while it still lasts. That's jackcarusa.com. This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves May 16th and is available for pre-order right now. My guest today, Gary Sinise. You know him from films like Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, Ransom, and the television series CSI New York. He is also the author of Grateful American and the founder of the Gary Sinise Foundation, a foundation dedicated to helping our nation's veterans. So now, without further ado, Gary Sinise. Are you still in LA or did you move to, to Nashville? Did I hear that? Or are you still a Southern California? I am, I am still in California. My foundation has moved to Nashville. We moved uh, the offices. We still have some offices here uh, until I move, uh, which is hopefully this summer. Okay. Um, but most of my team is there. Our daughters moved there. Both their husbands work for the foundation. So they're all there. And, you Perfect. know, we're trying to get there as soon as we can. Oh, that's fantastic. So many friends of mine have moved to Nashville uh, over the past decade, I'd say. Uh, a lot of military uh, friends that I serve with are now down there. And just, hey, what a great spot. It seems like an amazing place to live. It's, it, it, yeah, it's, you know, I can't, I, I think it's going to be a great place for the foundation. The foundation has offices in Franklin now, which is a beautiful town right outside of Nashville. And I think it's going to be a good place for us. You know, so much, so much, so much military and yeah. stuff around there and easy, easier access for me to get to the East coast yeah. than it is here. You know, I, I do all the, all the traveling and all that and uh, just getting to the east coast these days from the west coast is a little more challenging so it'll it'll be easier when we when we get to nashville yeah, yeah i guess the only bad part about being kind of in the center and we're not in the center we're in park city utah where you filmed the stand i realized you filmed the stand in utah uh years ago i, I filmed two movies up there my the first movie i ever did we were up in in park city it's called a midnight clear it's a it's a world war ii movie and that was that was the first decent part I had in a film and we shot there. And then uh, not too long after that, I was back up there doing the stand. Amazing. Amazing. But I mean, it's a great spot, but uh, what I found is that when I wake up in the morning, New York has me already. So there are text messages and there's emails from New York cause they've been up and then I'm doing my work all day. And then California is up later. So I'm getting those late ones. So being in the middle, uh, you get it all, you know, I, I, I need to put some barriers up. I found, uh, and maybe just turn <laughs> things off at some point, but now's not the time to turn anything off. Now's the, now's the time to, to run. But, uh, you know, you are so humble. I've seen you in so many interviews and you've done so much for, for veterans for, throughout your entire life. And, um, uh, so I just, I do want to read a couple things here. Cause I didn't know, about all these, all these awards. Um, so, and you're so humble, you'll never mention them, but, uh, the Hollywood stuff first Oscar nominated winner of an Emmy golden globe two screen actor guild award star on the Hollywood walk of fame. But then there are these other ones, there are these other awards here, the Bob hope award for excellence in entertainment from the congressional medal of honor society, George Marshall medal, 
the Spirit of Hope Award from the Department of Defense, Honorary Chief Petty Officer in the United States Navy, Honorary Marine from the United States Marine Corps, U.S. Naval Academy Honorary Graduate, Congressional Medal of Honor Society Patriot Award, FDNY, so Fire Department, New York, Honorary Battalion Chief, and the Thayer Award from West Point, and the Presidential Citizens Medal. And there are others. But that is incredible. I mean, amazing. <laughs> Gosh. Well, that's a, that's a lot of events there. <laughs> <laughs> Just, that, is, that is a lot of events. I, I know you do a lot of events. You do a lot of interviews, a lot of events. And, I mean, it's amazing what you have, have done with the Gary Sinise Foundation. But um, we were connected by a mutual friend of ours. Katie Pavlich introduced us, um, who's fantastic, uh, has an amazing book. She was my first guest on this podcast. Um, I saw that. <laughs> love, love Katie. She's such a such a great gal. She really love is. Her. Really is. And she has a cameo in the Terminal List, uh, the, the show from she plays a journalist in the uh, in the Terminal List. She's on TV there. So uh, so that was fun to, to, for her to have a cameo in there. Um, so she connected us a little while back and happy birthday, by the way, I realized you just had a, a birthday recently. Uh, <laughs> St. Patrick's day. That's, yeah, that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. That is a good one. Um, but I do want to ask, so you, you, you start off your book right here with all those things that you've done with, uh, Steppenwolf theater company that you founded and, um, and all the movies that you've been and everything you've done with the, with the foundation, but you start off your book, your grateful American, um, with an event, um, for the disabled American veterans. Um, and it was after Forrest Gump came out. I think it was six weeks after, after Forrest Gump came out and, uh, they gave you an award. And on that award, it says, uh, it is for your superb performance that brought awareness of the lifelong sacrifice of disabled veterans back into the public consciousness and, uh, in a remarkably positive way. And, uh, there was a word on there that, uh, that stopped you cold, uh, you said in here, and that was the word back. But I wonder if you could maybe talk about that night and what that meant to you. Well, thank you, Jack. Um, yeah, that was, uh, the, the, the chapter that you're talking, I mean, well, it's, I guess it's the prologue or something of the book, but, um, the title of that is called stunned. And I, 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 put that as a as as the as the central feeling that I had when I was there I was pretty stunned by the entire event and while I knew what it was for and I knew it was the disabled American veterans and everything and and tried to be prepared for it and everything I really wasn't quite prepared for what it was going to be and who I was going to meet and the reception that I was going to have and 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 all of that. And so when I walked out on onto the stage, this was 1994. And as you said, it was probably about, about five or six weeks after Forrest Gump came out. And uh, maybe, maybe a month after it came out, I got this call from them and they asked, invited me to come to Chicago to their national convention that year. It was in Chicago and they asked me to come and they wanted to present me with the their national commanders award for playing a wounded veteran and in in what they considered to be a positive way and they wanted to do something and have me come to their event and prior to that I really didn't know anything about the disabled American veterans 
organization at all. They've been around since, you know, since World War One, you know, right around that time. And uh, they represented at, at the time that I went there, I think they represented about 1.5 million wounded veterans going way back, you know, into World War Two and, and all the way up uh, to, you know, uh, the the Iraq the first Iraq war um so I go there in 1994 and walk uh, I, I remember I described this in my book going down they kept I was up in a suite or something upstairs they brought me down the back way and took me through the kitchen and and uh brought me to the the doors of the ballroom right they open up and you go into the ballroom and the kitchen staff's all running around back there and everything. And I'm standing there by the doors. And as I approach the doors, I start to hear my voice on the speakers out there. And they're playing scenes from Forrest Gump. And they're, you know, Lieutenant Dan screaming at the hurricane and, you know, he's all of that. And I hear my voice and everything. And I say, oh, that's cool. They're, they're playing scenes. And then they introduce me and I, I walk out and I go up this ramp, uh, wheelchair ramp up onto the stage. And there's even some video that I think Entertainment Tonight was there, or so, or they provided the 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 video to Entertainment Tonight or something because they played it after after I did that, and I just looked out at this sea of disabled veterans, of wounded veterans, and I was I was stunned. I was yeah. just stunned into into like emotion and. You know, you see all these wheelchairs out there, you know, uh, all these crutches, you know, guys that can stand up or standing up on one leg or whatever it is. And they're, they're applauding me for playing this part in a movie. And, and then they read the, the citation that you read. And it said, bringing, bringing the wounded veteran back into the public consciousness and and when I was writing the book, I, I, I sort of analyzed that and and think, you know, why was it necessary to bring our wounded veterans back into the public consciousness? Mm -hmm. yeah. Shouldn't they just be there? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and so I guess um, from that point on, I remained engaged and active in support of the DAV and wanting to do my part to ensure that the real Lieutenant Dan's out there that were wounded in battle and, and struggling through those injuries and, and, and the, and the challenges they face because of them mm -hmm. and that their families face and everything. I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I could use my public platform here. I am now I've got the, you know, I get nominated for an Oscar. I'd only done a few movies before that. So all of a sudden you have this, uh, this public, you know, platform, you know, I was well known in the acting world, but not to the American public. I'd done a lot of theater before that only a couple of movies before Forrest Gump. So Lieutenant Dan, you know, when you get, when you're in the biggest movie of the year and you get nominated for an Oscar and everything, it changes, it changes everything. You know, you're all of a sudden, you know, you're more well-known and everything. So I have this public spotlight and I could use it, you know, to, to try to do what I could to make sure that we weren't, we weren't, you know, bringing the wounded veteran back into the public consciousness, but actually keeping 
the wounded veteran there and and acknowledging that that those sacrifices have been made and we need to ensure that you know like what happened to our vietnam veterans uh when they fell through the cracks coming home we 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 don't want that happening to our veterans so those moments were teeing up something that i would have never suspected you know that would come you know not to not not too long after the, that that great moment at that uh, convention yeah, I mean, but you had you had touch, you've had touch points with the military your your entire life, and I I love the book. This is a very emotional read, also. I wasn't expecting, you know, I expected maybe one or two parts, but there are a lot of parts in here that really get uh, are are emotional to read, and I hope everybody does read it. Grateful American uh, journey from self to service, um, and I love how you sprinkle in here. There's some uh, pop culture sprinkled throughout, of course, with uh, other touch points with other celebrities and movies and and your career, and then there's different world events that are happening that are having an impact on you as as well and there's a lot of personal stuff in here it's just it's just an amazing read right here i hope everybody does um read this and then you know takes a breath and looks at their life and uh, and figures out what they can can do to add value to other people's lives as uh as you have but um also in here what an amazing backstory for your entire family um it was really cool to read about italy to brazil back to italy then through Ellis Island and then to Chicago. What, uh, what brought your family from Italy to Brazil and then back to, to Italy? What was, the, what was going on there? Yeah, my great-grandfather, Vito. Vito. <laughs> Vito Sinisi. It was time, time, to, time to move and, and uh, seek work elsewhere. You know? <laughs> so in the late 1800s, uh, you know, he brought um, – his wife, Anna, Anna Maria Fusco was her name. And they had had, uh, I think, four children uh, in Italy. And they moved, um, you know, he got work um, in Brazil, as you mentioned. But then they ended up uh, coming to the United States. And uh, I think around 1900. And uh, taking up residence on the south side of Chicago where they had another five kids. Um, I can't remember if it was five in Italy or four in Italy. I get it. It it, kind of split. They had about half their kids in Italy and and the other half. So uh, nine nine children, and my grandfather was one of those that was born uh, in the United States, um, you know, shortly after they arrived. Mm -hmm. Um, And... uh, he, he, my grandfather, um, he served in World War One as an ambulance driver in uh, in the Battle of the Argonne. So, you know, never I I think, um, I think the Battle of the Argonne remains one of the uh, the heaviest casualty uh, number, like something like twenty five, twenty six thousand yeah, over twenty six thousand Americans yeah. killed. Yeah. And he was, you know, driving an ambulance back and forth from the front line to the rear. And, uh, you know, and the Germans would target the ambulances. You know, I don't know why they would paint big red crosses (laughs) on the the ambulances. But they did, and the Germans were targeting the ambulances. My my grandfather escaped, you know, I remember there was a, he didn't talk much about it, never talked to me about it. Mm. But he did talk to his son, uh, Jerry, 
um, who became a writer, my uncle mm. Jerry, and Jerry wrote down some of the things he said. And he did tell one story of this convoy of an ambulances heading back from the front lines and the Germans just targeting these ambulances and the one in front of them got blown up and the one behind them got blown up and, you know, for yeah. whatever reason, he didn't get blown up. Um, but he had three sons and, um, you know, uh, his father died, uh, Vito died, I think 1941. Okay. Um, my grandfather uh, went to, to war and um, died uh, 1917. I think he was seven, 17 years old. I had to do a double take on that one. I was like, it says grandfather. I'm like, he must be saying great grandfather here. I had to do a double take on that. Uh, but yeah, grandfather, amazing. You know, my grandfather, yeah, World War I. Um, and uh, he was about 17 years old. There are photographs of him. Uh, um, at 17 years old uh, with his ambulance in France. And um, then he came home and he uh, went back to uh, this uh, army camp up in Rockford, uh, Illinois. And that's where he went. He met my grandmother who was an army nurse at that, at that base. And uh, they got married, had three sons. Uh, my uncle Jack, uh, my uncle Jerry and then my dad was the youngest and both my uncle Jack and uncle Jerry were uh, in World War II. Uh, my uncle Jack was a navigator on a B-17 with the 8th Air Force over in Europe mm. uh, flying out of uh, Kimbolton, England. Mm. And then my uncle Jerry joined the Navy and right out of high school, I mean, he, I think he got out of high school right around um geez you know just the year before the war ended yeah so he went off to war and he was on a ship in the pacific but he had to fight uh, for it right he was uh he was put in the category oh you you can't make it you're and he fought for it uh to, to you're, you're right he had problems he had the, like hearing problems and eye problems and all kinds of stuff and he refused to like leave <laughs> yeah. so so he stayed and uh, they just let him stay and he was about 18 years old and and served in the pacific uh served during the korean war as well and then my dad was in the navy during the korean war um uh didn't get didn't deploy but uh, my dad was ended up being a navy photographer there's a funny story about my dad because <laughs> he he went through uh, great lakes naval base and did all his training there then they sent him to uh, jacksonville florida and he was serving there you know and they asked him they said you know uh okay you can go go on a ship or we need some photographers. Do you want to, you know, uh, do you want to take pictures? So my dad raised his hand and said, I'll take pictures. So they sent him to Pensacola. And that's where uh, the photo school there was for the Navy was in Pensacola. And uh, recently, you know, not too long ago, within the last couple of years, I played at the Naval, at Naval oh, Air yes. Station there. And I went and toured around and looked at the <laughs> looked at the buildings that my dad used to work in and where the labs were and where the photo school is and everything. And then he ended up uh, being uh, stationed at Anacostia Bowling uh, outside D.C. Mm. during the early 50s during the Korean War. And his job was 
basically had he had top secret clearance and he would process film coming back from the battlefront in Korea and then he would take it over to the Pentagon and hand it off to the command uh, to the leaders over there and they would analyze all that what's going on and see the film and and whatnot so he learned the film business in the navy and then ended up being a film editor on the south side of chicago yeah i love that and i love uh i went to great lakes as well um and uh so i'm familiar with uh with that area um and i love how in, in here how you're talking about how hard your dad worked i thought that was because that generation oh my goodness they had they worked uh, nothing was handed to yeah. him. Uh, he learned to trade and, uh, some of your memories of him are, are working so hard. And I think about that a lot, especially recently, cause there's so many things that I'm juggling. And so to read that in here, um, I was just, uh, anyway, it was, it meant a lot to me to read that in there. And I'm hoping that my kids, um, are looking and I always try to, anytime I'm writing or whatever, and they come in and they knock on the door, I, I put it down, I stop. And cause I want their memories of me to just be that I'm only working, but, uh, I hope that they see that that hard work, um, is necessary to provide, to add value, uh, to be a productive citizen. Um, so, but it's tough when you have those little ones and you're trying to, to balance all that. So I, that really meant a lot to me to read that in there. And then your dad went on to a long career in film editing, uh, and worked on a lot of, a lot of shows. He, yeah. I mean, he got, I mean, if he, if he had gone on a ship, I mean, he, he may not have, <laughs> He'd gone into the film business, yeah. but uh, he went, he went and took the camera and uh, took pictures and ended up learning processing and, and uh, you know, all, all, all of the stuff that he learned in the Navy during the early fifties. And then when he went back to Chicago, so let me just say this, I was conceived while my dad was in the <laughs> Navy, but I wasn't, I was born, uh, and I was born actually about 10 days before he got out of the Navy. My mom was in Anacostia and she said, I want to go home to Chicago <laughs> and have the baby there. So she left. My dad had to stay because he was still in the service. I was born on March 17th, and I think my dad got out of the Navy around the 25th. Hey, there you go. Accounts, you're a brat for, uh, for five days or, or 20, you know, almost 10. I'm a Navy brat. I mean, I love it. Right. <laughs> my dad was in the Navy. I think that I counts. <laughs> That's <laughs> so fantastic. He went back and then I, I guess, you know, he ended up getting, you know, he's a young, young guy in his twenties and he ended up uh, getting some jobs at some laboratories in Chicago that were processing film and whatnot, mm -hmm. ended up learning film editing, ended up being a guy in the early sixties who started his own film editing business. There was a lot of uh, work in Chicago at that time in advertising. So people were doing commercials and there were all kinds of commercial houses that were producing commercials and they need editors, of course. And so my dad ended up cutting probably 10,000 commercials. Uh, wow. I don't know, some, some ridiculous number of commercials, but that that's where he learned the business. And that's, that's the Mad you know, Men days. Pardon me? That's the Mad Men days. Like that's exactly what it was. And so he was, he was uh, not home a lot. My yeah. dad would go out with the advertisers after work and, you know, then they'd say, and then, then the advertisers would get some ideas <laughs> while sitting there drinking and eating at dinner about what they wanted to do with the spot. And then they would say, let's go back to the office and, oh, you know, geez. try that stuff. So my dad would have to do it. And yeah. he would get home very late. Uh, many nights he was he was working all the time when I was a young guy yeah and he worked on, I saw I read that he worked on uh, Victory at Sea 
which is something that I he watched did. with my dad yeah. growing up. Uh, we had the, do you remember the RCA video disc player? So not laser discs, but the video disc players from the late seventies that were like records and you put yep. them in and then they'd go for like, I don't know, maybe 40 minutes and you'd have to come back in and push them in again and flip it and turn it in. Sometimes they'd skip like a record would. Um, but we had those, uh, we had the victory at sea ones and I'd watch those with my dad. Um, because no his, yeah. You saw those? Oh yeah. 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 I, and I'm going to collect them again because my mom only recently, I think got rid of those. Uh, and of course we had a huge collection of those and now I'm going back trying to collect them all again and find a RCA video disc player that still works. Um, and, and, <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Good luck yeah. It's yeah. kind of fun. There's a whole subculture are people that collect those sorts of things and VHS tapes and and uh, and all that sort of thing. But um, yeah, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was um, killed in World War II off uh, Okinawa, 1945. He was a Corsair pilot, so my dad never never met him. Uh, he was my dad was born while while he was away. And uh, yeah, flew the Corsair, the F4U Corsair, which for those yeah. listening, if they ever saw Black Sheep Squadron on uh, in the, the late 70s or in uh, reruns in the 80s, maybe um, that was the plane that uh, Pappy Boynton flew and uh, Robert Conrad playing Pappy Boynton in that series. Robert so we, Conrad. Yeah, we, we'd watch, my dad and I would watch those together and then we'd watch Victory at Sea and that was kind of our connection to that generation since it was, you couldn't connect with anybody on Facebook back then. If you didn't, you know, maybe you had a letter maybe from someone in the, in the squadron, um, but uh, that's about it. Um, so there was really no connection um, back then for those kids who lost their dads in, in World War II. Um, so well, my uncle was Jerry, that for us. Jack, uh, you said Okinawa? Yep. Of Okinawa. Um, so, so my un- uncle Jerry was on a landing ship tank um, during the Battle oh. of Okinawa. So he, wow. he was there at the same time on a ship. Right there. Right there. Yeah, yeah he was killed uh, on the aircraft carrier bunker hill took two uh kamikazes almost sunk it almost sunk took it out of the war had to limp back to uh, i think seattle for repairs but uh by the time it was repaired it never uh war was at over by that point um but that was our so hollywood and uh and victory at sea and those those shows and movies was our connection to that generation so i have these great memories of watching those movies with my dad watching that tv show with my dad and then uh, playing with little army figures with a uh, navarone plastic thing and the little army figures. So we had a, we had a great time together doing that stuff, uh, growing up. I knew my path very early, uh, very early on. Um, you're stuck. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, also what I love about this book. Also, I talked about those, um, those different events that were impactful to you. And I mean, you remember Cuban missile crisis. You talk about where you were when president Kennedy was assassinated. And I think you were, what, were you eight or you were very young. Eight, eight or nine. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, so you're growing up during that time frame. I recently had Clint Hill on the podcast, who is a uh, Secret Service agent, who is the Secret Service agent who jumped on the back of the limo when Jacqueline Kennedy is crawling on the back of it. And what I didn't realize is that um, protocol is for that first vehicle to hit the gas. She's already, They don't know that she's on the back, though, and the vehicle behind that trail to hit the gas also to get out of there. So if they hit that gas before he had managed to get on, he barely made it on the back of that limo and managed to get Jackie back in that back seat. But if they'd hit the gas and she'd rolled off the back, she probably would have been hit by that trail. By the other car, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to talk to to him about that. Um, But uh, are those some of your earliest memories? Because some of my earliest memories are of the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis. And I remember Walter Cronkite being on TV and counting down those days. I remember uh, newspaper headlines, and I remember Time Magazine and Newsweek. And those were very impactful to me. Um, was the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and Kennedy's assassination, were those some of your earliest memories that were impactful? Yeah, you know, but when you're eight or nine, you know, they, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
right over your head. I was I was pretty pretty young. I think I you know I of course we've we've heard those stories about you know okay if there's a nuclear bomb that <laughs> hits over here just jump under your desk <laughs> and you had to do that. <laughs> yeah, we we had those kind of uh, drills, you know, jump under the desk kind of thing. Yeah, uh, this was back in the early '60s, so I was, yeah, I was in. Uh, let's see, I think I was probably about third grade when um, when the assassination of President Ken Kennedy happened, mm -hmm. and I still have an image of of me uh, on my way to school, and a little kid was kind of marching around just singing a song about that Kennedy was dead or something. And that's when I first heard it. And then I got to school and they sent everybody home mm. and um, it was, it was, a, and then everybody was just glued to their televisions. And I remember sitting there watching mm -hmm. everything with my, with my mom uh, the funeral and uh, Oswald. I think we were watching television when he got shot you know mm -hmm. right live on camera um by jack ruby um so i i those images are are pretty solid in my in my head yeah it, you know and i knew that you know everybody was sad and yeah it was a, it was a sad time so it leaves an impression on you even though you're mm -hmm too young to process everything and the impact that something like that would have on the country. But yeah, uh, I, I have those, those images burned into my, into my memory. Yeah. It was really, uh, it stood out how you described the country being sad. Like you noticed at that young age that everyone was sad. I think that's a, yeah, yeah that was a, that was powerful, sad. powerful imagery that you, you talked about in there. Um, but now you're starting to get a little older and now some Vietnam protests, you start taking notice of, of some of those Vietnam protests. Um, at the same time, you're taking interest in, in theater, uh, with West side stories that the first, uh, is that the first production? Well, um, I'll, I'll back up a, a little bit. So we were we were in Chicago on the south side of Chicago till till I was about nine or ten years old. So it was shortly after the Kennedy assassination that we moved from the south side up to the northern suburbs to a suburb called Highland Park, which is I'm which is uh 25 miles north of of chicago uh, you probably heard what happened last year on the fourth of july in highland park that's where i went to high school and uh we had a terrible shooting there during the fourth of july parade um we moved there probably 64 and I remember that parade so well every year. I was even in the parade as a young, as a young kid, the Highland Park Parade. And then I went to, um, then we moved. When I was in seventh grade, we moved out to a Western suburb called Glen Ellen. Mm -hmm. And I was playing in some bands. And, you know, I got a guitar when I was in fourth grade and started to learn how to play. And I was playing bands when I was in sixth grade and seventh grade and eighth grade in Glen Ellen um, playing there kind of struggled through, you know, academically with school. I, I don't think I learned the fundamentals of reading and, you know, writing mm. when I very well, when I was, a, you know, in those early childhood years mm. that are so important. I just, I don't know. I was looking out the window or something. <laughs> I, I just never, 
never. So I struggled all, always. If you if you if you are a very slow reader and you can't write or spell, mm. <laughs> you're going to struggle as you get older. <laughs> and, and I I did. And um, but music was was always fun. And I remember uh, then I, I got out of eighth grade and as a freshman. I, I had played football in seventh grade and eighth grade, and I went to try out for the football team as a freshman, and everybody was twice as big as me and <laughs> twice as serious. And, you know, really, you know, I, I just, it, it wasn't going to be my thing. So I, I just continued to play music. And I remember that um, my girlfriend at that time, her brother was a drummer. And, um, I never played with him, but he got in in a play. He got in West Side Story uh, that they were doing at Glenbard West in Glen Ellen when I was a freshman in high school. And this was probably 69, 1969. So it's the Woodstock. It's the Vietnam era. It's uh, television sets every night showing the casualty reports and Things were not going well in Vietnam. Um, and during that freshman year, I remember, you know, there were all these protests, that, you know, all all these, they call them war, war moratoriums, you know, and the, people would wear black armbands and, and uh, sit outside and s sing folk songs and, you know, have a, have a, have a moratorium against the war and they, these kinds of things were happening in 1969 when i was a freshman and i remember if you if you said you were going to that you could have an excuse to get out of class so wow. of course i i'm <laughs> gonna go to it <laughs> you know i got out of class hmm. and that's why i went and uh you know i really didn't wasn't paying much attention to the to the war or anything i knew that you know we had woodstock happening we had uh you know protests going on all that kind of stuff but i wasn't paying much attention but uh i did want to go see my girlfriend's brother in this play and he was in west side story and then the follow <clears throat> that following summer we moved back to highland park actually right next to highland park there's a little town called highwood but everybody goes to the same high school highland park high school and I moved back there and I'm a sophomore there now. And it was, it was pretty challenging to, to move away and then move back. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for a teenager, moving is always disorienting, you know, I mean, you got to make new friends and you got to figure out what you're doing. And I was struggling academically and everything, but I, I fell in with some band, some people who wanted to play in a band. So that kind of kept me going. And I remember standing, there's a story I, I've told about ditching class and standing in this hallway with my bandmates and we all looked pretty scruffy and uh, the drama teacher walked by and told us we looked perfect to play the gang members in West Side Story. So why, why don't you come audition for the play? And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go, I'll go look around. I'll go see what that is. So after school, there was an audition and you know, beautiful girls, one after another, are going in there. So I just went in and ended up 
auditioning and just making fun of it. I wasn't taking it seriously at all, but mm. I was getting laughs because I was such a clown. And she put me in a play. And that changed changed my whole life. Just this this moment of standing in a hallway, ditching class and having the drama teacher walk by and tell me to come audition. Obviously, I I I did okay and and went into the business and ended up <laughs> making a living just because I was standing in that hallway. Isn't that wild how often things like that happened in life? If you had decided to do something else, you know, go, you know, whatever, go to the store real quick, grab a little bite to eat, whatever it, whatever it was. Uh, and you wouldn't have been there in that hallway. And there's so many instances like that yeah. in people's lives that just these <clears throat> things hinge uh, on, on events like that. Seemingly minor at the time, but looking back are are major. Yeah, well, it was yeah, it, well, it was it was major because I fell in love with the theater uh, doing that play. I just had a little tiny part, but I was part of it, and I I got so emotional about it. And there's some some nice stories in the in the book about that uh, and the impact that that first thing has on you. You know, people ask me all the time, you know, what's your favorite thing and what's the most important thing, and is Forrest Gump the, the greatest? moment and you know what's your all that that first moment in west side story where i had only a couple of words to say i didn't even have lines they were just words you know small part i never neglect to place that in the top five you know i've been i've won awards in the in the movie business and television business but that first thing uh, the impact of that and the life-changing aspect of what happened there, uh, just falling in love with it and embracing it and, and, and the course it set me on in my life, because the following year I auditioned for everything I could and I wanted to be in every play and, and all of a sudden a guy who was, who was doing really poorly academically, all of a sudden I found this thing that I was good at. And I took all the theater classes and, you know, I'm getting, I'm failing grades in math and science <laughs> and history and everything. And you, then you see my theater classes and I'm like getting A's and everything, yeah. you know, I'm acing everything because I fell in love with it. And uh, it, it set me on a course. I ended up starting a theater company after yeah. that. How long you, after high school did you guys start the Steppenwolf Theater Company? Oh, within weeks, Amazing. you know, I, I, I grad, I, I actually, Jack had to go back because I was such a uh, failing student uh, <laughs> through most of my high school years. I, you know, you have to have a certain number of credits to graduate. If you don't have those credits, you can't graduate. I didn't have enough credits to graduate with my class. So they said, if you want a diploma, you got to come back for another semester and you got to pass <laughs> you gotta pass your classes so i ended up going back after and i tell a story in the book of how dejected and terrible i felt that that all my classmates went on to college and everything like that and i went back to high school so i felt pretty dejected but when you're in the theater department you know you're you may be a senior but you're also working with freshmen and sophomores and juniors and it's sort of one big thing. So I had I had friends who were younger than me, mm -hmm. uh, younger than me, who were in the theater department. So 
when I got out of high school in January of 74 that and finished that extra semester, me and some of the other kids who were younger than me, who were still in high school, we went and found a, a space and we'd put on a play. And I wasn't going to go to college. Uh, high school was challenging and I wasn't going to go to college. So uh, we just found a space and we started doing plays in there. And we called it Steppenwolf. And then we found a more permanent space in the basement of a Catholic school that had closed down, had this big basement that was not being used. And they let us use it. We built a theater in there. Amazing. Uh, John Malkovich became a, uh, a part of the, the company at that point. Lori Metcalf, who's had a tremendous career. Uh, Joan Allen. Another tremendous career, Moira Harris, who be, you know, wonderful actress who became my wife, and you know we've been married now since 1981. I mean, a lot of important things happened. Good people came out of that. We we created a theater company that now, uh, when we had no money, absolutely nothing, no money, nobody worked for any money. We all had jobs somewhere else. We would go to the theater at night and we would do our, our plays. We were all in our early 20s. And if you look back at the history of that, 1974, next year, Steppenwolf Theater, which is now a Chicago institution with, with a multi-million dollar giant complex, theater complex on the north side of Chicago. If you look back 50 years ago next year, it all started with a couple of kids who <laughs> had absolutely nothing but a love and desire to, to make theater. And, and we did that. And many of us went off and made a pretty good living at it. It's incredible. I mean, almost 50 years. Uh, what incredible. What, I mean, I love the photos in here, too, of you guys back in the 70s. I love those photos. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> Everybody looks like they're on some sort of a rugby team, you know, from the 70s. You know, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And if you look, there uh, there might be a picture of Malkovich. In a, there in, is. In, and he's got hair, you know. <laughs> there is. It's, it's great. I love those. Recently on Change Agents with Andy Stumpf. Andy and Black Rifle Coffee Company founder Evan Hafer discussed ways to combat the challenges facing veterans transitioning from the military. Work and sacrifice can be miserable, but the long-term health of the individual takes work. Yeah. And sometimes that's not easy. And just because it's easy doesn't mean it's good. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Change Agents with Andy Stump wherever you get your podcasts and get the full cinematic experience on YouTube at This Is Ironclad. All right, today I want to talk about Protect.com. That is P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. Started by my buddy Nick Norris from the SEAL teams who was recently on the podcast. He's all about health and wellness and living that best life. So what we have here, hydration, immunity, energy, rest, liquid packs. As we all wanna feel our best, we dream of waking up with plenty of energy to excel at our work, our personal lives, and have a great workout every single day. But the reality is, very few of us do that. That's why Protect was started. And you can grab a convenient pack right here. This is energy. So this has been boosting me through my latest novel. And look at that. It's a liquid pack right there. You just, bam, add it to a glass, add a little water, and you are good to go. So hydration, 
Love the hydration and the immunity and the clarity, which I'm going to take as soon as this podcast is over and I get back to writing. So all of that plus the rest. How important is that rest? Right here, take that an hour and a half before bed for some great sleep. And for hydration right here, 30 minutes after you wake up and right before your workout. So swap that daily energy drink for the energy. Try that hydration, that immunity, that rest. And they also have products like this, Reef Safe Sunscreen, SPF 50 protect right there. And right now you can get 25% off. Go to protect.com. That is P R O T E K T.com slash danger close for 25% off. Go check them out. And so when did you decide to move to LA? Um, was that always when you started that theater company? Was it always something that you aspired to, or was it something that came about over time? Or did you all of a sudden say, Hey, you know what, let's give this thing a shot and head to LA. I think Jack, uh, many of us in those early days, we were, we were um, inspired by a lot of film actors, mm-hmm. you know, because, um, you know, when you're in a suburb of uh, Chicago, I mean, there's only so much theater to go see, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we would go into the city occasionally and see a play or something like that. But, movies you could you know go to the movies and i mean much so i was influenced and many of us were influenced by and this goes back into the early 70s by the folks that were really just chewing everything up at that time and it was it was gene hackman and it was marlon brando and it was al pacino and and robert duvall dustin hoffman uh john cassavetes gina Rollins. I mean, these, you know, uh, we, we were influenced by, I think those, I mean, of course I would look to Jimmy Stewart. Uh, I mean, you can't get more special than somebody like Jimmy Stewart, Spencer Tracy, people like that. They, they were all cutting their teeth, very, very strong performances going back into the, you know, thirties and forties and whatnot. But the actors who were just slightly older than I were Pacino and De Niro and Nicholson and, you know, the guys I mentioned there. And they were all doing some of the best work of their lives right at that time. Mm -hmm. So we were watching them all the time and very influenced by what what they were doing. And, And so we wanted to kind of try to create that sort of style of acting on stage. And so we would pick plays that would get us all together and we would, we would work. And then we worked and worked in that little Catholic school basement for, I don't know, we were probably in there for four years or something like that. And we built an audience and critics in Chicago started to hear about us, this young company doing this Mm. stuff in a basement, what's going on? And so the the top critics would start traveling from Chicago all the way out to Highland Park to see what we were doing in the basement. <laughs> and you can even look at some of the early, like going back to 1976, look at some of the top critics from the Chicago papers writing about this young company, Steppenwolf, and what it was like to, to kind of experience that thing. And eventually our popularity grew to the point where we built a stronger board of directors to help us raise a little more money. And then we, it was time to move from the suburbs to, mm. to the city. 
And so we moved into the city and opened, uh, we rented a space that was already a theater there. Uh, we rented it in 1980. We started doing plays in Chicago. And by 1990, 10 years later, after moving into the city, we were we broke ground to build a building wow. in in the city of Chicago. And the 80s were a very productive time. It was the it was the the galvanizing time for Steppenwolf Theater where the where the early 80s. We started taking our plays to New York. They started getting international attention from critics that were seeing our plays in New York. Um, that that helped our profile in Chicago. So it helped us raise more money in Chicago to build our own building, which we yeah. broke ground on in 1990 and opened it in 1991, a, a building from the ground up that, let's see, if you look at that, since 1974 to 1990, what's that, 16 years? Wow. Within 16 years, we were building our own building. And now we just, uh, just last year, we added on about another $80 million worth to that complex built an entire new, new building. If you're ever in Chicago, go yeah. check out the complex. We've got restaurants in there now. Oh, I mean, amazing. Organic thing. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't have a lot to do with it, uh, these days because I'm so busy with everything else. And there's a whole new group of folks that are running it and the board is very strong and everything like that, but I'm very proud of having spent about the first 27 something years focused on a theater company. It's so incredible. So incredible. I have a lot of friends in Chicago and I owe a visit out there. So I will definitely get it out and, uh, and check it out next time I'm there. Um, just, just stand there and look at that yeah. complex there and then think about these teenagers. Yeah. You know, in the basement, starting start, this thing. Starting with absolutely nothing. Oh, and it's now great. It's a massive complex. Oh, it's such a great American success story. I mean, I love those, those stories. They're so inspiring it's for, great, for great American dream uh, story. No mm -hmm. question about it. You start with a, a dream and a passion and you work hard and you stay committed and anything can happen in, in America. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Incredible. So at what point do you move to, to LA and do you go out there with uh, oh, yeah. an audition That's in mind or do you go out there with like no auditions in mind, just hoping to figure it out? Do you have an agent? Do you have like $5 in your pocket or how do you get out there and what are you, uh, what are you expecting when you, uh, when you show up? I'm sorry, that, that was your original question. Yeah. That I got <laughs> I know it's fantastic. By the early Steppenwolf days. So um, my dad and uh, we took, we started the company in 74. We took up residence in the basement in 76. And my parents, my dad, as a film editor, opened a an editing house in Los Angeles in 1977. Wow. So my dad, my sister, my mom, and my brother all moved to Los Angeles. And I had the theater company. And, and that, so I stayed mm -hmm. in Chicago. They all moved to Los Angeles. 1979, 78 or so, I decided to take a little break from the theater company and go out, live in my parents' house and see if I could break into the movies. You know, because as I said, you know, I love movie acting, love those actors. I wanted to do some of that. Mm -hmm. So I went out there for a time. Uh, didn't, didn't do well. <laughs> didn't. <laughs> Didn't do at all well. It was pretty miserable. I was working for my dad during the day at his uh, editing house, just schlepping film around and whatnot. 
and trying to get some auditions. I got a play that I was in out there and you know, I, I read about this, uh, an audition for a play. They were replacing the cast to keep it going. Mm-hmm. The original cast was going to leave. It was a play by Sam Shepard. Mm-hmm. And I loved Sam Shepard's writing. And I knew the play really well. And I knew I was right to play the kid in the play, this mm-hmm. young kid. So I went and auditioned and I got in it. It was uh, something in Los Angeles. They have something called equity waiver where if you have under like 99 seats or under 50 seats in your theater, you don't have to pay the actors. The actors can work for free (laughs) and you just give them a little stipend or gas money or something, but the union's not going to bust you or anything like that. So they waived it. And I got in this equity waiver show. I think there were about 50 seats and uh, it was, you know, it's a good play. Um, and there was an agent who came and saw it and asked me to ask to represent me. So now I had an agent. That was good. Hey. So I got a couple of auditions, but I wasn't very good at the audition. I wasn't very good at sort of translating the 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 film the the theater style to the film style. Yeah. So I would go into the the uh, film audition and I would I would play to the back row. Mm. You know. <laughs> And you don't have to when you're in a in a hotel room <laughs> auditioning for somebody who's sitting about two feet away from you, you know. And so I I had to refine that a little bit. So I didn't do well until. Is that the one where you go for to audition for something that Robert Redford is doing that Timothy Hutton gets the a part for, and uh, and you're yes. sitting there you wouldn't get off the couch or and, uh, until you saw Robert Redford. Well, that's a that's a funny story. So I, <laughs> I found out about an audition for a movie called Ordinary People that Robert Redford was going to direct. I think it was the first thing he, he directed. And Ordinary People takes place on the <laughs> North Shore of, of Chicago. It takes yeah. place right where I grew up. That's that's where the story is based. In, I think Lake Forest, Illinois, which is right next to Highland Park. And so I thought, of course, this is my part. I've got to play this part. I grew up there. I know I know the whole thing. And I auditioned once and they didn't call me back. And my agent was able to give me an audition. They didn't call me back. And I was furious. I, I just couldn't stand that. So I snuck into the lot and went to the casting director's office and sat myself down on the on the couch and I said, I need to audition again. I you didn't call me back and I need to see Robert Redford. You didn't you don't see Robert Redford until <laughs> you get called back, you know? And I didn't get called back. And I said, Robert Redford must see me. I'm not leaving until he sees me. And the casting director just shook her head and she says, Gary, don't do this. Uh, I'll I'm gonna have to have you escorted <laughs> off the lot if you don't leave. And uh, her name was Penny Perry. I remember Penny Penny Perry. And um, I think they did escort me off. (laughs) (laughs) But I somehow snuck in there. I was able to sneak in. But uh, I I was uh, escorted out, I think. And um, never did see Robert Redford. Uh, But... You know, I was frustrated and wanting to audition and I wasn't getting anything. And then I made a decision that this wasn't going well and I'm going to go back to Chicago. So, um, 
you know, we and it was during the time where we we had made the decision at Steppenwolf to move from Highland Park, the basement, hmm. to Chicago. So they were doing all that, getting all that ready while I was in L.A. trying to break into the movies. And so I made the decision to go back. I went back in 1980. Um, my wife and I broke broke up. I mean, we we weren't married at the time. We were going to get married. Uh, she ended up staying in Los Angeles. I went back to Chicago and, uh, I started acting in Chicago and then I, I really cranked it out. I ended up taking over as the artistic director of the theater company. Um, you know, we, uh, I, we were doing great plays. We started moving shows to New York when I was the artistic director. One of the things I wanted to do was I wanted people to see our work somewhere else, Mm. which was very good for the company. And I got a lot of attention as a director. So eventually uh, I did one of my shows was uh, that we did was called Orphans. It was eventually made into a movie with Albert Finney. Mm. And it was a play and it was very successful in in uh, in New York. Uh, and I got offered a movie deal because of that um by a guy named david putnam david putnam produced the killing fields remember that movie oh, the yeah. Killing. so he produced the killing fields he produced oh. chariots of fire wow. and and columbia pictures hired him to run the studio and he came and saw orphans and everything and he offered me a movie deal in in california oh wow and so i turned over the reins to of the artistic directorship to um, uh, a couple other buddies of mine who, who worked, uh, who were with the company, and I moved to Los Angeles in '87, and that's that's what got us out to Los Angeles. Is is this movie deal? It was a two year, what they call a two year first look deal. That means they don't give you much money, but you get an office, and they just want you to look for the material that you want to do and give them the first look at it. And then if they turn it down, you can pedal it around. Mm-hmm. And so that was my first look deal. I ended up getting another picture that I ended up directing with Richard Gere called Miles from Home. And I went to work on that in 87 and it opened in 88, small budget movie. Nobody saw it, but, but it got me started. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. That's incredible. What, at what point do you do, um, was it uh, Tracers? A play about Vietnam was that in LA or Chicago? Yeah, Tracers was was when um, it was in Chicago. We had um, we had moved. The first play that we ever did in New York was called True West, and it's a Sam Shepard play. In 1982, we moved it off Broadway from Chicago. Malkovich and I were in it. I directed it. It was a massive hit, and it's it was it was really the thing that got. Malkovich's career uh, in the movies started because he was very, very good in it. It was really popular. Everybody was coming to see us do it. Uh, and then as soon as as soon as we finished our six-month run, he got on an airplane and went to Thailand to shoot The Killing Fields, which was basically his first movie. He got offered that because of True West. Wow. And he went, uh, he went to do that. I ended up going back to Chicago ended up directing and with Vietnam veterans in my family on 
my wife's side mm-hmm. of the family. Um, her two brothers, West Point graduate. Um, he he was uh, you know platoon leader, a lieutenant in Vietnam. Went back as a captain, a company commander. Came back, went to West Point. He became a major. He was a tactical officer at West Point, teaching there. Then he becomes lieutenant colonel. Uh, was teaching at at Fort Leavenworth. He get, he unfortunately got cancer uh, and died in 1983. But he was a very well well respected, highly regarded uh, Vietnam veteran and military leader. In fact, there's a um, there's a field manual, uh, FM twenty two one hundred. It's very well known, and he rewrote it in nineteen eighty three. Of course, you know they don't give any of the authors credit. You know, <laughs> it's the army manual, right. right? But he's the one who rewrote it. Um, there's a concept in there that he put in. What does a leader need to be, know, and do? And be, know, do is very very well highly regarded in, in the army and it's still those principles that are in fm 22 100 that came out in 1983 it's been rewritten since again but the 83 version that my brother-in-law wrote is still highly regarded wow. in fact they give an award uh his name is uh boyd mckenna harris and they give the lieutenant colonel boyd mckenna harris excellence in leadership award every year since 1985 to a cadet at West Point and then at Fort Leavenworth where he was when he was diagnosed with cancer and and writing the leadership manual they give a leadership award in his name at Fort Leavenworth as Uh well and in in 2016 30 years after his death uh, 33 years after his death he was inducted along uh, with Lieutenant General Hal Moore wow. into the Fort Leavenworth Hall of Fame. Jeez. And and it's be you know, 33 years after his death, that that is because the army regards what he did as a leader back in the 70s and the influence that he had in the early 80s on on the army uh, was very su- significant and wow. profound. And they wanted to acknowledge it. So I went to the ceremony with my wife and her sisters. And, you know, here we are at Fort Leavenworth and they're inducting their late brother into the Fort Leavenworth Hall of Fame. You know, gobload of leaders out yeah. there, you know, I mean, in the yeah. audience. Uh, it was it was stunning. It was really something. And each year at Fort Leavenworth, they will induct uh, someone who's still living and someone who's who's passed. Mm. Uh, Hal Moore was still alive at the time, wow. but he was unable to come himself. Mm. But his son came and we came to represent uh, uh, my brother-in-law. So wow. a lot of early influences there. And because I knew them so well, I became fascinated and focused on the Vietnam War and what happened to our Vietnam veterans when they came home from war and and I learned a lot from from Mac his name everybody called him Mac and then also my wife's brother Arthur who was a combat helicopter pilot 
And then my wife's sister's husband, who was a combat medic in Vietnam. 101st Airborne, right? Pardon me? 101st Airborne for him, right? Yeah, for him. Yep, absolutely. And I learned quite a bit from all of them. Just they they really got me focused on on the Vietnam War and what was happening during that time, Jack. And and then I started to think back, well, what was I doing? You know, when you were off in the jungles, what was I? I was chasing girls and playing guitar and and doing plays and and yeah the casualty reports were on television every night but i really it went right over my head and then you know just a short time later after graduating and getting to know my wife i meet her brothers and they really kind of opened my eyes and i i wanted to do something to acknowledge the vietnam story and to tell you know tell their stories they they were at this time this is the late 70s early 80s they were still hiding in the shadows and it was not great a great time to be the vietnam veteran and the wall was built in 1982 but it was still a a very tricky time for vietnam veterans and i wanted to do something kind of to you know to to focus on their stories and tell their stories so I started looking for material, and that's what brought me to the play the, that you mentioned, Tracers. I found it in a Los Angeles magazine called The Drama Log, which would talk about theater in Los Angeles. And I, I looked, and there's this play written by a group of Vietnam veterans, and they're performing it on stage at a theater called the Odyssey Theater. So I got on an airplane from Chicago, and I flew out to see it. I saw it two nights in a row. I was just knocked out by it. These are all Vietnam veterans performing a play that they put together based on their experiences after sort of getting together, you know, every day for six months and kind of working it through and coming up with what they wanted to say and telling their own stories and fitting, weaving those stories together into this play called Tracers. Mm. And it was conceived by a Vietnam veteran called John DeFusco, who had theater experience. And then a couple of the other actors who answered the ad that he put in the paper. <laughs> hey, I'm a Vietnam veteran. I want to make a play. Come and uh, come and beat me. And uh, he got his cast together. A few of them had done plays before. Not, not much, but mm-hmm. a few of them had done. But the rest of the guys were just they were Vietnam veterans and they'd never done a play before, yeah. but they workshopped this play and they were performing. And I went and saw it. I was knocked out by it. And I started begging them to let me do it in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, initially they said, Jack, no, no, no. This play can never be done by anyone, but veterans, only veteran, only veteran show, you know? <laughs> and they were really, you know, they were possessive of it because it was their yeah. thing. And, right. and, and as they should, but I kept saying, you know, oh, come on, you know, let me, let me do it. And finally, it closed in Los Angeles and nothing was really being done with it. And so I said, what are you, what are you going to do with nothing's being done? Let me do it. And um, I said, you know, we're doing this play right now in Chicago. I think you I said this to John DeFusco. John, I think come see what my theater company is is all about. And this was a this was a kick-ass show that we were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Malkovich directed it. I was in it. Every, you know, it was a cast of 30 people, a play by Lanford Wilson called Balm and Gilead. And we were doing it on stage, 1981. 
And I said, John, I'll fly you out. You know, come come see it. Okay, I'll do it. You know, <laughs> he, he came out and he was floored by the play. And because it, it was, he, John appreciates theater and it was very theatrical, very good production. And then he said, okay, let's talk about doing it. I wanted the rights to do it in New York because we had started moving mm -hmm. our shows there. And uh, John said, no, no, just Chicago. Let's just do it in Chicago. So he gave me the rights and we started working on it in 1983. We opened it in 1984 and it was a, it was a very powerful Big hit. Veterans from all over the city started to hear about it and come into the theater to see it. And it really, you know, if I look back at what really began my engagement with the veteran community, it's those early things. Mm -hmm. Talking to my brothers-in-law, putting on this play, engaging with the local veteran community in Chicago. We made every Tuesday night free for veterans. So we'd have them lined up out the door, you know, I mean, trying to get in full house of veterans watching the show. Uh, it was very powerful, um, very powerful. And it set the stage for what would happen, you know, within the next 10 years of getting involved with, with Forrest Gump and Lieutenant Dan and all of that stuff. It's incredible. And also during that time, you're putting that together. Um, the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing, uh, occurs and you talk about that in here and how that impacted you at the time and uh it impacted me as well i was so young at the 10 at the time but uh i'm writing a book about it now that comes out in the fall of 2024 so my first nonfiction work there's a bunch of declassified documents from the reagan white house uh that have recently become available so you can really find out what was going on in the oval office at the time with the decision to put marines ashore or to keep them on an amphib ship in the mediterranean and um and it's a uh, it's an incredible story so uh working on that yeah right that now. that's incredible that you're doing that me um twice now like if you look at my character in csi new york mm -hmm. he's a beirut veteran um there's another movie i did called sergeant will gardner oh. one once one couple of scenes with my buddy max martini okay and max wrote it and i said can i make this this guy a uh, a Marine, uh, a veteran from Beirut. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's great. So, and over the years, I've kind of engaged with that community a little bit. Of course they get, they're totally forgotten about yeah. that whole incident is forgotten so much. But if you look at it now, what is it? 40 years, uh, this, this, this year, mm -hmm. since that happened, uh, in October of 83, uh, and I remember we were getting ready to do tracers and I remember one of my guys giving me a call and I was watching TV and watching the news about it. And he gave me a call at the same time and said, are you seeing this? What happened? And we're digging in now to the veteran thing. I'm taking my cast to the VA and they're mm -hmm. meeting Vietnam veterans and they're starting to get very, uh, you know, their awareness of what happens to our veterans and military community is growing and changing. 
And so that was profound. It was profound. Yeah. I'm so glad you're doing that. That's that that is really great. Thank you. Thank you. I'm working with a historian and Pulitzer Prize finalist on it, James Scott. He has uh, five books out there, mostly on World War uh, Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an amazing guy. We're going to go out to Camp Lejeune this October uh, when Beirut Veterans of America gets together. Uh, do some more interviews out there. But where these families uh, are uh, opening their, you know, Chat, addicts. Yes. Let me. Can I show you something? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I do the National Memorial Day concert uh, every year. I'm the co-host. That can you see, I see that? it? Yep, I see it right there. Yep. That that is a group of Beirut veterans. No kidding. Wow. With me, right after the show. That's amazing. I, I wanted to meet them. Wow. And, and for those that are just uh, listening, not watching, there's a, a photo. Um, right behind Gary on his shelves right there. Uh, incredible. Right there with family photos and everything else. That's amazing. I have Jeez. it right there. Yeah, it, it means so much because, you know, we can never do enough to remember. I mean, if we if we forget, you know, I mean, that's what happened to our Vietnam veterans. People just, you know, I mean, they didn't get, they didn't get the welcome home. They didn't get the support, you know. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad, really glad you're doing that. Jack. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Then the families, um, they're opening, you know, attics and shoe boxes with letters and photos from that time frame. So we're getting strategic level declassified <laughs> material to go through. And we're getting these personal letters that are just heartbreaking. Some written just the day before the bombing and, you know, a picture of a, a guy standing next to a Jeep type thing. And, you know, the next day he wasn't going to be with us anymore. Um, and if I'd looked at that picture back in 1983, I would have thought how old that person looked. And now I look at it and, oh, my God, how young these guys looked. It's just uh, so it's really emotional to go through all that and to listen to these uh, the families talk about their uh, uh, their sons that were killed. And then for those who survived, talked about how they survived. And then the days after of going through the rubble. And it's just uh, it's an incredible, incredible story. So, um, yeah, we want to do it, uh, do it justice and uh, do it in a thoughtful, respectful way. So it's uh, it's really coming together. So I'm, I'm really great. excited about That's it. That's great news. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, so that was really impactful to you. And once again, in the book, there are all sorts of things like that, that happen that, that people who grew up during this time frame will be like, Oh, that was happening in Gary's life here. And it was happening on the world stage here or domestically here. Uh, I just love how you do that throughout the book. Um, but Steinbeck has been an influence on you. And I know you narrated travels with Charlie, which is one of my, my favorite stories. Um, I think it's fantastic, but you got the, uh, you made a deal with the Steinbeck estate to do, uh, mice and men. And you got the rights for one year. How did that all come about? <laughs> that was so, yeah, we, um, you know, when I, I, I mentioned that we broke ground to build this massive complex in, uh, in Chicago, build our own building. We broke ground in 1990 uh, for that. At the same time that we broke ground, we were on stage in New York on Broadway with a our own adaptation done by a guy named Frank Galati, who God rest his soul passed away uh, recently. Um, but Frank adapted the Grapes of Wrath. He was one of our director, actors, writers. He adapted the Grapes of Wrath for the stage, and we um, it was kind of a two year journey. We started in 1988. Right after I had finished that first movie, uh, Miles from Home with Richard Gere, I went on to work on The Grapes of Wrath. I played Tom Joad, the, the part that Henry Fonda played. Wow. 
And uh, we did this adaptation and we worked on it in 88. Then we uh, moved it to uh, California in 89 and did it at the La Jolla Playhouse. And then we moved it to London. And then shortly after that, uh, we moved it to Broadway. And in 1990, we were working on it in Broadway. Well, on Broadway, it won the Tony Award for Best Play. You know, Frank won for Best Director. So it did real well. Mm -hmm. um, and it was Elaine Steinbeck who uh, owned all the rights to, to her husband John's material. So Elaine had to say yes or no to giving us the rights. And she said yes. In fact, you know, Elaine was very, you know, very knowledgeable about theater. At one point, she was a stage manager herself. And so she knew all about Steppenwolf and she gave us the rights and we did the play and she loved it. And Elaine and I became pals. I mean, I became, she was just such a wonderful lady and I loved her. And I remember we finished our run on Broadway um, September of 1990, we mm. finished the run. We did a six month run, had a great run and won the Tony. We, we did a lot of cool things. We broke ground on a building while we're doing this big play on Broadway, <laughs> winning the Tony. Everything was going right in the, the early eighties up until 1990, building the building. I got very close with Elaine. And I remember we, uh, at the end of the run of the play, PBS brought cameras into the theater and we filmed the play on stage for four days. We shot the play for television, um, which was cool. And we had this idea that, well, why don't we have Elaine come out on stage at the very beginning and introduce herself and introduce the play. Wow. So the, the, you know, the, it fades up and there's a blank stage. And this little lady walks out and she stands in the middle of the stage and she looks at the camera and says, hi, I'm Elaine Steinbeck. And my husband would have really liked this play. And I know you're going to enjoy it and blah, blah, blah. So here it is, The Grapes of Wrath. And she introduces the play. Well, I remember there's a funny story where she did her first take. And of course, we're in an empty theater, right? Hundreds of seats everywhere. And Elaine, knowing the theater, she came out and stood there. And she's speaking to everybody in the audience, uh, you know, as if there's people in the audience right. on stage. And she did her first take like that, like she's talking to the people in the audience. And we, and we said, okay, cut, let's do another take. And I remember walking out on stage and I say, Lane, uh, this is because we're doing a television show. The audience is that camera right there. So say it right into the camera. And I have this wonderful picture where she's of me standing <laughs> next to her and she's looking out there like this, like, oh yeah, yeah, it's okay. And I'm sort of pointing, look at the camera, giving her a little direction. She did that. We, we just became such good friends. And while we were shooting that, we were standing backstage and I said, you know, of Mice and Men, you know, had such a profound effect on me when I saw it as a 16 year old just discovering acting would you give me the rights to to make that into a movie and uh she reminded me that it it had already been a film like three times or something like that you know there's a 1939 version 
There's another version. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's a few other versions of it. And I said, well, I think I could, I think I've got a really good handle on that. I, I know that story so well. It was, it was a big influence on me as a young guy. And so she, Elaine gave me the rights. And I mean, gave me the rights. I didn't have to pay for them. She gave, gave me the rights. The deal that I made was for one year, I was the producer. I had the right to go out and pitch it. So, you know, like anything, you know, I own, own this yeah. and I can go for one year and pitch it. So I had had some deals with MGM before to develop a couple of scripts. So I had a, a bit of a relationship with them. My agent at the time was a very powerful agent, and he represented me basically as a director. Mm. And his name was Sam Cohn. And he's really the one who introduced me to Hollywood, right? Sam wanted me to be like the next Mike, Mike Nichols or something. You know, he represented Mike Nichols, and he just wanted me to really focus on directing. Yeah. So he introduced me to a bunch of people. That's how I ended up getting that deal you know, where I moved out to California with a, with a movie deal. It was through Sam and Sam invited, um, Alan Ladd Jr. Who was running MGM at the time. And I knew Alan Ladd because we had set up some deals to develop some screenplays. And he came, um, to the grapes of wrath. So he saw the grapes of wrath, saw what we were doing with Steinbeck, saw me on stage playing Tom Joad and, when I had the, when I left uh, New York to go back to Los Angeles, I first thing I did was go into Alan's office and say, "Why don't you let? Why don't you guys finance a Mice and Man? I'll mm -hmm. make it into a movie." And uh, it, I mean, it really is remarkable how fast it all happened. You yeah. know, of course they didn't have to read it. Right. Everybody knows of Mice and Men, so it's not like, well, let me read it. I'll right. think about it. Get back they, to you. they didn't have to read. It. Everybody knows it. So I said, I'll get Malkovich. I'll get Malkovich to play Lenny and I'll play George. We had, John and I had already done it on stage together in 1980. So we knew the parts really well. And I had a real kind of good sort of confident handle on what I wanted to do with it as a director. And the first movie I did with Richard Gere, I was less confident. But I learned a lot of valuable things on that first movie that I was going to, you know, not make certain mistakes that I made on the first movie. On the second movie, I was just a much more confident director on Of Mice and Men. And I knew that I could, uh, I knew that I could act in it and direct it because I knew it so well. Just knew the story inside out. So it was a perfect thing. We weren't going to have a big budget. Went to another buddy of mine, said, you produce this with me. Um, so he started handling some producing, uh, um, you know, uh, responsibilities. And we had to look for a screenwriter. And he mentioned, hey, what do you think about Horton Foote? Horton Foote, very well-known playwright. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but Horton, you've seen To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Of course. So that's Horton Foote. Wow. He wrote that screenplay. Wow. Uh, fantastic, fantastic movie. There's another movie that Duvall did called Tender Mercies. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Uh, Robert Duvall won an Oscar for that. Uh, Horton wrote that. Wow. From very highly regarded writer from Texas. Okay. 
And I remember calling up Horton and saying, you know, would you uh, consider mice and men? He goes, why do you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I'll tell you what I said to him, Jack. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie called Scarecrow. No, I, I'm. you mentioned it in here. I made note to, uh, to check it out. That is Gene Hackman and Al Pacino. They're like George and Lenny, you know what I mean? <laughs> in this. And they're just, it's a, it's a movie about what the, where these two guys meet and they go on this journey together. And they're, uh, I mean, it, it's just some of their best acting. Mm. And it, I fell in love with that movie and I wanted to make a movie like that. And I yeah. said, Horton, have you ever seen Scarecrow? He said, no. I said, well, I'm going to send it to you. Take a look. So he watched it. I said, I want to make a movie like that. And, he, and uh, so he said, okay, I get it. <laughs> so he, he jumped on board. Wow. And so this was, from 1990, then I go off to make my first movie as an actor, which is called A Midnight Clear. I mentioned that. It's a it's a World War II mu movie. I'm shooting in Park City. Yeah. Horton is working on the script of, of Mice and Man. He comes up to Park City. We work on it while I'm not shooting, that kind of thing. Yeah. He goes back. I was in Park City probably... Um, it was probably... March, February, March of 91, Horton came there. I came back to Los Angeles after I finished shooting that. I got I got another part in a movie called Jack the Bear with Danny DeVito. Yeah. And Horton finishes the script while we're getting that together. We turn it into MGM. MGM says, okay, let's do it. Uh, you get $8.8 .8 million for your budget. That's what the budget was. For of mice and men. So I'm shooting Jack the Bear with Danny DeVito, uh, my second film, and we're prepping of mice and men at the same time, getting it ready the summer of 91. By the fall of 91, one year after I left New York with the rights to of mice and men, we were shooting of mice and men. I mean, it took one year to pull that together. Um Jeez. And so, and, and it was great. Elaine Steinbeck came out to the set. We had a mice and men going and a mice and men really was, it was a turning point in a way because, you know, it was like a calling card here. Here's this guy and he produced, directed and acted in this, in this movie. And while it wasn't a big box office movie, Jack, or anything like that, it was, critically well regarded uh the industry could see you know some artistry in it and that it wasn't it, it was well done it was well made and still 30 years later or whatever it is you can look at it and the style that i i chose to do it in is sort of timeless so it's not like it's rooted in the style of a particular time or anything like that yeah so it really turned out well and and probably more kids over the last 30 years of seeing that movie in high school, uh, I mean, certainly many more than ever, <laughs> ever saw the movie in the theater. Wow. That's, and yeah, and it came out uh, around the same time as uh, River Runs Through It. Is that how that, that, that kind of went? Yeah. Uh, River Runs, Runs Through It, I think came out uh, maybe the week after of Mice and Men. Yeah. That Redford and guy, that Redford guy is always... He was chasing me there, but <laughs> Redford had a lot, you know, the studio MGM, while they, uh, I, I give them a lot of credit for giving me the money to make the movie. 
they really let me make the movie that I wanted. They they made a few suggestions here and there, but it wasn't like hardcore. You have to make these changes or anything like that. Right. They were very supportive, but they also had. They knew there was probably a limited audience for of mice and men, mm. and they were only going to put so much money into the advertising. River runs through it. On the other hand, they had a rising star with. Brad Pitt, they had Robert Redford, who's gigantic. Uh, they put a lot of money into promoting River Runs Through It. It got some nominations, all that kind of stuff. Very similar in a certain way. Uh, you know, not not the same kind of story, but, you know, period piece, mm -hmm. like Mice and Men right. and that kind of thing. And they came out at the same time. That's a busy time for you. For people that don't, uh, now I now I always assumed it was busy, but now that I've been a part of it, I understand now what goes into uh, one, getting green lights, uh, putting writer's rooms together, getting scripts approved, uh, casting, uh, figure locations, production schedules, getting all of these people, let's say 350 people at the same place at the right time with the right gear, which is similar to the military. Um, but it seems more difficult in Hollywood for whatever reason, because everyone has all these... Uh, uh, I don't know if whatever, but it's very similar, very similar. But then you film and then you have to edit and the post-production process and then the marketing and the whole thing. It's a lot of work. So when you say you are prepping of Mice and Men while you're filming another movie um, and you're in Park City up here, uh, it, I mean, that's a lot of work. And now I can appreciate that having been a part of at least one cycle now and in the middle of my uh, starting this uh, this second cycle for a, a spinoff and then a, a second season. So it's amazing that you were doing all that. And actually, I drove up here to the house last week. And uh, as I was driving up, there were all these trailers everywhere and horses everywhere. And I, I slowed down and I asked them what was going on because it was at night. And there were lights everywhere and they're filming a Western Filming a Western up here. And, uh, yeah, that's a good spot up there. <laughs> yeah. at no, night with these beautiful horses. It's huge. It was it was incredible. Um, but yeah, right, just right down down the road here. So you were doing all that. And you got to show Steven Spielberg the film. That was a really great part of the story here too. And then I love the story at the end where you ask him uh, for somebody. We're trying to figure out what do you ask Steven Spielberg. You have him here, a captive audience, and uh, and you ask him well, how do you know where to put the camera? And he says he just <laughs> I watch a lot of movies. And I love that because that's you know how I got to, to write is I read a lot of books my whole life. My mom is a librarian, so I grew up with this love of reading, surrounded by books, naturally gravitated towards thrillers because I knew I was going into the SEAL teams even at a young age. So I'm trying to read anything I can with a protagonist that has any background in Vietnam. And in those books in the 80s, a lot of those main characters were Marine snipers or Navy SEALs or Army Special Forces or something along those lines, CIA paramilitary guys. And I was just reading those and loving those and knowing that I was going to write them one day. Um, but the same thing with films, all those films I loved growing up. Uh, now it really comes in handy when I'm in these meetings and we're talking and we're creating and you can say, remember this and this movie in 1978 and this one in 1983 and this one in 1990 and everybody is, has a love of film. And so you can, you all have these touch points, even though it might be your first time working together on a project, you have a love of film and you have common touch points with these films, especially if you saw them through those eyes of a eight year old, 15 year old. 20 year old yeah. uh, at the time. So it's, it's really fantastic. But I love that Steven Spielberg said that I watched a lot of movies. I think that's, I think that's <laughs> that, fantastic. That's, that's what I, I never forgot that. And, <laughs> and I thought, well, of course, of, of course he's watched a lot of movies. <laughs> Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so elemental. Like you watch a lot of movies, you study what the directors are doing. You look where the camera's going, how it's moving. You look at the staging, 
all that stuff. And then you just try to replicate it. Yep. <laughs> you know? Amazing. And, Amazing. And you do your own thing with it. Yeah. And that, that made so much sense yeah. to, to me. And then right around this time, this is Forrest Gump time. So how did, uh, how did Lieutenant Dan, how did you, when was the first time you heard that there was this movie called Forrest Gump and that, uh, there was a part, uh, Lieutenant Dan and, and how did that come to you and how did you, how did that come to be? Well, um, uh, of mice and men did some, some, uh, of mice and men did, did, did some great things. I mean, as I said, it was like this, you know, now I have a movie that I produced and directed and acted in, you know, I'm playing the main guy in it. Um, you know, up until that point, I, I'd only done a handful of movies and I was playing a supporting role or something like that. George and Lenny, they're the leads in the movie. And so I, you know, I'm playing the lead and I'm shooting the movie and, and, uh, producing it and everything like that. So it got the attention of, of some different people in the business. First, it, I mean, it got, uh, it got the attention of Stephen King and, uh, and a, and a director named Mick Garris, and they were about to produce a, a, an eight-hour miniseries of his book, The Stand. You know, it's like 1,300 pages or something like yeah. that. And they were going to do an eight-hour miniseries of The Stand, a four-part series of it. And they offered, they offered me that, that part because of, of Mice and Men. I didn't have to audition. I just got a call and they wanted me to play Stu Redmond, who is the, you know, the center, uh, center of the movie. Mm. Um, and, and so tangible, tangible reason for having done of mice and men, yes. all, of, all of a sudden I'm getting offered a, a lead in a big giant, uh, ABC miniseries. And I get to also at the same time go in right around that time and audition for a movie called Forrest Gump. And I read Forrest Gump and it was the part of a Vietnam veteran. And so, I mean, I, I went, this is, this is, this, I should, I need to play this part. I, I, all the Vietnam veterans work, uh, in the past, in the eighties, Vietnam veteran brother-in-laws. I, I remember, uh, I remember when platoon was first going to be made, it was back in like 84. It didn't, I think it came out in 86, yep. but in 84, I was doing that play Balm and Gilead that I told you about. Uh, we had moved that to New York and I was doing it in New York and heard and and I had already worked on tracers and I was like into the Vietnam thing and now we're doing Balm and Gilead in New York it's a massive hit Steppenwolf is just the greatest thing and all that and I'm doing that and I hear that Oliver Stone is going to make this movie uh, about a unit in Vietnam uh, and the movie's called Platoon and and they're casting for this movie and I was able to get a, an audition for it. And I think I was under, uh, you know, I couldn't tell you for sure, but I think at the time I was uh, under consideration for one of the parts in Platoon. I really wanted to do that, you know, with the Vietnam thing. Well, the money, something happened with Oliver Stone's money and it fell out. And 
So, you know, everybody goes about their business. And I went back to Chicago or whatever it was um, and, you know, didn't do it. But then along, along, you know, later on, along comes this opportunity to audition for another Vietnam veteran, Lieutenant Dan Taylor and Forrest Gump. And I, I just say, I got, I got to do that. So I, I, I got the audition. I went to the audition. I remember Bob Zemeckis sitting there, the director, wow. um, Eric Roth, the writer, uh, Wendy Feinerman producer, uh, was there, uh, the casting director, her name was Ellen Lewis. I remember every, pretty much everybody. There was another producer in the room named Steve Starkey. I remember wow. everybody, everybody was there. And I did, I did some scenes, you know, I'm in, I'm pretending I'm in the wheelchair or whatever. It was like a hotel conference room or something like that. And I did one audition. And I really, believe me, because it was the Vietnam veteran, my, my wife's brother's sister's husband, the connection to the Vietnam veterans back in the, in the eighties, the work that I did in, I, I had, helped support Vietnam veterans groups in the Chicago area, had a lot of compassion. I just wanted to play that part. And I thought, you know, this is a, this is a good story because so many, if Jack, if you think about so many of the movies um, of the late seventies, eighties period mm -hmm. that were made about the Vietnam experience, and I, I can name a few oh, platoon yeah. apocalypse now casualties of war yeah. coming home you know i yeah, mean deer hunter. deer hunter all these you just you know you never had a good feeling about uh, you know is this vietnam veteran are they going to be all right you know mm. i mean certainly you look at uh, what happens to martin sheen you know at the end of, end mm -hmm. of apocalypse now it's not going well and, uh, you know, look at Bruce Dern at the end of coming home. He swims and takes his clothes off and swims out in the ocean. He's not coming back, you know. A um, lot of the end of, end of platoon, Charlie Sheen flying off in the helicopter, looking down at the battlefield, mm -hmm. crying, tears in his eyes. He's going to have a hard time coming home. Um, you just always, you always just wondered, you know, mm -hmm. I don't think they're going to be all right, these guys. But then along comes Forrest Gump and Lieutenant Dan gets blown up. He's guilty. He walked his platoon into an ambush. You know, I mean, he's guilty about that. Guys get killed. The guys get hurt. He loses his legs. He's he comes home. It's it's not a good time to be a v Vietnam veteran. He goes into the shadows like so many did. Um, isolates with booze and and, you know, everything dark dark period of time and when you remember in forrest gump that, mm -hmm. that dark period of time in in new york where mm -hmm. you see him there but then what happens at the end of the film i mean at the end of the film he's a wealthy businessman <laughs> you know i mean he's standing up he's got his hair cut everything he's moving on he's running a business he's he's married he's standing up again he's got a beautiful suit on it was a story of a vietnam veteran that we'd never seen before you know, as somebody who could put the put the war years behind and move forward in life. And we hadn't really seen that story before. So it was a happy ending for a Vietnam veteran. It's a happy ending for for the for the two guys. There's a scene where he walks up 
Forrest Gump is getting married and he and he's standing there and he looks and he and it cuts and you see Lieutenant Dan walking up on legs and he's so got a cane and he's walking up and Forrest Gump's face and the two of them look at each other at the end of that little scene and there's just a nice look between the two of them and it's like hey we're okay you know so we're we're doing okay yeah um and these are two vietnam veterans that that went through hell and back and here they are they're back and they're doing all right and it's a beautiful ending to a story and it's a story that that really resonated with the vietnam veteran community because they're you know while so so many of the stories that have been told in hollywood you just you know the vietnam veteran was always you know not doing well and here here you got all these guys at the disabled american veterans convention bunch of wounded guys you know probably the majority of them out there were vietnam veterans Mm -hmm. and they're missing legs and stuff like that but they've moved on they've moved forward they've 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 done okay. One one of my great pals at the at the DAV that I met who passed away unfortunately about a couple of years ago during the COVID stuff. Um, his name is Jim Sursley, and Jim, uh, triple amputee, wow. came home. He was one of the national commanders. Uh, he's one of the past national commanders of the DAV, and he's he he reminded me sort of of Lieutenant Dan of somebody who, you know. He wasn't wealthy, wealthy like Lieutenant Dan. You know, Lieutenant Dan goes into the shrimp business and makes a whole bunch of money on Apple and everything like that. <laughs> so great. Investor. But Jim did well in real estate and whatnot. And he had a triple amputee moving forward in, in life. And very, very positive. And that, that story of the Vietnam veteran putting the warriors behind them and moving forward in life. Just, we hadn't experienced that before. Yeah. And so I think in some ways, that's one of the things that resonates so profoundly with so many of our Vietnam veterans went with regards to Lieutenant Dan yeah. and why it's, you know, I realized, you know, at a certain point, Lieutenant Dan is, is, it's just more than a movie part, you know, it's more than a movie part. It's, it resonates profoundly with this community that I'm trying to help and are, are wounded. And I've seen so many, you know, in the hospitals and everything they want, that's the story that, that they want and that we want for everybody who comes home from war. We want them to be able to get, get back, you know, get back, come home, move forward in life. You know, you know what I'm talking about. And I think that's one of the, one of the great things about that story. It's, you know, it's a small part of the movie, but it's a, it's a very significant part of the movie for sure. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, that's one of the greatest films. Uh, uh, I, I mean, amazing uh, what, and what you did following that, but, uh, but in preparation for it, you read a book called uh, fortunate son uh, to prepare for that <laughs> part. Uh, unfortunately it doesn't have the best ending. Um, but uh, could you talk a little bit about that, about reading that, that book? Yeah. That the, so you, so Chesty Puller, obviously, you know, is a highly regarded uh, uh, yeah. uh, Marine officer, as, you, as you'll as you get. Um, Chesty had a son named Lewis, 
and um, Lewis was a Vietnam veteran, and he got he got blown up like Lieutenant Dan, but even more severely, I think, than Lieutenant Dan. I mean, he he lost his leg. Lieutenant Dan can go on prosthetics. Lewis had to be in a chair because his legs were gone from like the hips down. Um, he just, just vaporized stepping on a bomb. Uh, and, and he wrote a book about his experiences and, and the darkness of those experiences and, um, and what it was like to serve in Vietnam and then get wounded like that and to come home and the trauma of going through, you know, the hospital system for so long and everything like that. And it's a profoundly moving book. And I, I I can't remember how I found out about the book, Jack, but I did. And so I remember having Fortunate Son with me on a set of Forrest Gump reading it. Sadly, um, maybe two months before the movie came out, uh, Lewis took his own life. And he had lived with those injuries. Now you're you're talking 1994, and he served, you know, in the in the early 70s. Wow. He had lived with those injuries, tried to deal with everything, been up and down with the alcohol and everything. Uh, he, I think he ran for Congress. He was, you know, went went to school. I mean, did, he did a lot of things, but he was suffering, you know, uh, at the end. And I was very sad to hear that because yeah. I was like. I would have loved to have met him. I would have loved for him to see Forrest Gump, and he didn't get the chance to do that. Uh, there was a there there were dark things going on, and 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 he lost that battle. Yeah. Uh, but it was a it was a profoundly moving book and motivating book for me, and um, I was I was glad to have have that and access to that. Yeah. And then also in preparation, you have another touch point with Platoon and that Dale Dye, another uh, Vietnam veteran who did the technical advising on Platoon, also uh, sent uh, sent you guys through a little boot camp uh, for uh, yeah. for Forrest Gump. How, how was that? I love that, you know. <laughs> and let me just back up because let's see, when I was doing Tracers, um, so Tracers, we started rehearsing that in 1983, right? I didn't audition for Platoon until 84 and Platoon didn't come out until 86 or something. Yep. 86. And so the, the, the Dale died boot camp became kind of a famous, well-known thing, you yeah. know, in Platoon taking them out in the jungle and beating yeah. them up. <laughs> um, but now I don't know where I got the idea because none of that had happened. Uh, but I, when I was getting ready for Tracers, I found a, there was somebody at my theater company who was part of a summer camp in Michigan that had cabins and it was out in the woods and stuff like that. And I wanted to, I wanted to do a boot camp <laughs> with this cast. Now, I don't ask me how I got the idea, because <laughs> like I said, Oliver Stone hadn't done that yet or, or anything, but I wanted to sequester my cast, isolate them and then kind of put them through the paces. Mm -hmm. So we, we got access to this summer camp, nice. but it was winter. Okay. <laughs> so it's closed down. 
they said they would uh, they would allow us to go there and they would turn on the heat in the cabins and it was nothing but snow and we did this five-day boot camp yeah. in, in michigan okay so years later so what is that 10 years later right this that was 83 10 years later i'm getting ready to do forrest gump and here i am with dale die doing a boot camp Amazing. out in the woods in south carolina to get ready for that and i will say that that the boot camp uh was was critically important i i really wanted to do that i you know i was hoping we'd do that and they hired dale to come and do it um because i wanted to learn soldiering you know i wanted to immerse myself in that that thing you know nothing you know i'm the leader i got my platoon i got to deal with them out in the woods or the snakes and their bugs and you know yep. all that stuff we're living out there at night you know the bad guys are out there whatever it is and um i wanted all that and i think by the end of that three or four day boot camp living out in the woods uh then the next thing we were going to do is we were going to start shooting the platoon stuff in forrest gump we yeah. came back from boot camp i think on a Saturday and Monday, we were marching in to do our stuff. And I was ready to, to play the soldier part of Lieutenant Dan. Yeah. You know, not not the crazy guy with the long hair and, the, right. and, and all of that. But I was ready to play the soldier at that point. And I think the boot camp and, you know, reading and, and studying and my brothers-in-law and all the, the the veterans that everything was coming together uh, and i remember us marching in to start shooting scenes where the platoon is walking down the road oh, or yeah. whatever Gosh. and uh and everybody was very impressed we looked like a real unit you know oh it was amazing i mean i still remember when i saw that movie for the the first time and and then going into the military and then people quoting it i mean quoting it to this day you know in the military <laughs> quoting lieutenant dan it's uh, it's fantastic people must do that to you all the time um and i do have my eye on the clock and you've been so generous with your time here um so i was going to ask you about apollo 13 and truman and ransom but that's all in here so people should definitely get this book Grateful American. Um, but I want to talk about the Gary Sinise Foundation and uh, also 9-11. Um, that was another major event that had an impact on you. And where were you when 9-11 uh, when happened? I was here in Los Angeles and I got a call from a buddy of mine who's in New York. And, you know, like everybody, turn on the television and you know, you're not going to believe what you're seeing here. And yeah. I turned on the TV. I saw the second plane um, hit the building, and uh, the the chapter in my book about that is is called Turning Point, because I think Jack, in some ways, you know, you know, we we go on a journey in life, and and you take turns and think, you know, you meet somebody here, and they you go in that direction, or whatever and you never know quite where you're going or what's happening but i think what had happened meeting you know in the 80s with engaging with the vietnam veterans and getting involved there and and then the 90s with forrest gump and getting involved with supporting our wounded and, and those kind of things those were all those were all just prepper that was preparation for something that would happen uh on september 11 2001 and 
it was it was a turning point for sure. So I was in New York um, six weeks before that. And I was doing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on Broadway. I was playing uh, R.P. McMurphy. And we did the production in uh, Chicago. And then we moved to London. And then we moved it to Broadway, Steppenwolf. And we won the Tony Award for Best Revival. Wow. In probably June of 2001. And... It was a it was a fairly expensive show. And, you know, it had like, I don't know, there's over 20 people in the cast. So you got to pay them all and, mm -hmm. you know, all that stuff. So it's a fairly expensive show. And it looked like the summer business was going to be OK, but not great. Mm. So I remember after we won the Tony Award, we sat down and we said, you know, you know, our our contract is until September 16th. We had signed a six-month contract. And it looked like we were maybe going to do break-even business, you know, mm -hmm. for about the last two and a half months. Okay. Wasn't going to go, you know, you had investors. It wasn't going to go into a lot of profit. We were going to break even and I said, look, this, this show is a killer to do every night. <laughs> mm. This show is a killer to do. I mean, I'm screaming and yelling for two and a half hours, you know, eight <laughs> times a week. And, you know, I mean, I said, I, I really don't see why we should do that to just break even, you know, if we're not, if we're not putting money to back in the bank to pay the investors, uh, and we're just going to break even for two and a half months. I I'd rather, you know, let's announce a closing date. And, you know, try to try to pack these houses yep. uh, rather than play to, to smaller houses for, for the next three months or whatever it is. Let's mm -hmm. let's try to fill them for the next eight weeks or something like that. So that's what we did. We announced we were going to close on July 29th. And 2001. So we closed. Uh, we 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 did good business. Uh, it was a great experience. I loved doing it. And we closed July 29th. I went back to Los Angeles. And, you know, six weeks later, whatever it is, September 11th, yeah. uh, I would have been there till September 16th if we did the whole run. But yeah. uh, I went I went home to Los Angeles. My buddy called me up and told me about it, watched television. It was a terribly, you know, awful time. And, and I remember, um, I tell a story in the book, you remember uh, where I, President Bush, um, he said that the, the Friday after the Tuesday, September 11th was on a Tuesday, that that Friday was going to be a national day of prayer and remembrance for the victims and families affected by September 11th attacks. So I remember going through our, to our little Catholic church and taking, taking our little kids, our, our kids were little and we all went and it was totally packed, totally packed. I mean, every, Every church or every place of worship in the country, I think, was packed. Mm -hmm. People looking for some way to process what we'd witnessed on television. Um, 
you know, the fear that we all had that is this the new, is this going to continue to happen? Are there going to be more attacks? Um, I remember, you know, shortly after that, remember anthrax going through the mail and all that stuff. I mean, all of a sudden we got anthrax going through the mail. You're wondering if somebody's going to sneak across the border with a backpack full of that stuff and dump it on a, on a Capitol lawn or, you know, I mean, there was such paranoia and fear and I felt all that. And I was trying to process all that. I remember standing there in the church, just weeping and some, I, I heard something that day about uh, the healing power of service. And now I don't know if the priest said it or if I just heard it, but <laughs> I, I, you know, I heard a message that day, some, something in, I said, how am I going to process this heartbreak that I feel? How am I going to do that? My country's under attack. Where are my, my kids are little. What kind of world are they going to grow up in? What What is it going to be for them? I need to take action in some way. I need to do something. And so having been involved with Vietnam veterans, uh, you know, having, you know, engaged with the disabled veterans community, um, having veterans in my own family, we deploy the following month, you know, to Afghanistan. And all of a sudden we're, you know, now we're, we're starting to lose people. Uh, people are getting hurt, you know, people are getting killed. Families are losing loved ones. The, the war's going, I just, that, that was, was unbearable for me to think that I was just going to not do something, you know? Yeah. And so uh, to process that heartbreak that I was feeling and to kind of deal with it, uh, I started raising my hand that, you know, to take action and to be a part of supporting our our warriors, our defenders, our uh, people that were deploying, you know, I wanted to. And I think a lot of that came from just having engaged with so many Vietnam veterans and, and, you know, what it was like when they came home and deployed, people didn't care. And, you know, I mean, they got caught in them. Every Vietnam veteran back then Lieutenant Callie and the My Lai Massacre became the Viet. That was the Vietnam veteran, everybody, the baby killer thing. And they, they got caught in a mess, the media mess that happened then. And I was I just wanted to be a part of making sure that people that were raising their hand to go respond to those attacks knew that they were appreciated and supported. So I started raising my hand. And what do you do as an actor? I raised my hand for the USO. I started going out, visiting, doing that, going to the hospitals, doing all that kind of stuff. And the more I did it, the more I wanted to do. And I just kept doing it over and over and over and over, going here, there, and everywhere. You can go on our website. I don't know if you've done that, yeah, but yeah. there's a service history page. There's if a great information on there. Yeah. Did you go on that? Yeah, I've gone on there. It uh, uh, So org for everybody listening. It'll be in the show yeah. notes. Click on that. And great website. So much information on there. And you didn't go just once or twice or once a year. You were going all the time. Down if you look, yeah. If you look on the founder page, you can go to the volunteer service history and it tracks 
it tracks from the early 80s all the way up to now, today, you know. I just played at Point Magoo on Saturday. I saw that on your on Instagram. Yeah, amazing. I mean, I'm still doing stuff uh, all the time in the foundation, but all that service history is all tracked through. And I just was raising my hand. And my kids were young, and I was shooting a TV show and going overseas and going around the country and going here and there. I just, I wanted to be so much a part of making sure that you and your fellow defenders out there just knew that there was a grateful nation. And if you recall in 2004, 2005, 2006, 2008, the same kind of BS was happening in the media. I mean, it was just like um, everything, everything was bad. And the Abu Ghraib, okay, they become the face of the right. American soldier now. Abu Ghraib, those idiots in the prison, they, they became the face of every single deployed American soldier out there, right? They are I remember Ted Kennedy getting on the front uh, on the on the uh, getting up in front of Congress and he's saying, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein's torture prison is now under new management. Oh. That's what he said. And it was a slap at George Bush, of course, and everything like that. And I, I didn't want that political division and craziness to affect our our warriors today who were serving honorably in Afghanistan and Iraq to be caught in that mess right. the way our Vietnam veterans were caught in yeah. that mess back then. And so I just wanted to kind of do everything I could to go and visit the war zones and come home and talk about it on television. This is what I saw. I saw, I saw soldiers building schools. I saw civil affairs uh, projects here and there. I, 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 I met, you know, the, the highly skilled and capable people that are serving our country honorably, they have nothing to do with the idiots in the prison. Mm -hmm. And um, I just tried to do as much as I could to shine that spotlight, you know, in a positive way and to keep our, our service members up. And I remember I, I, I was, you know, I'm in Iraq in 2007 and I'm watching television there with the troops and there's some bad story about, the troops in Iraq or something, you know, everything's a mess. Everything's going downhill blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there with the guys and they're going, you know, uh, yesterday I helped a lady build her, you know, rebuild her water heater over here. You know, I mean, and a lot of things, a lot of positive things were happening. And that's when I started the school supply program and we started shipping hundreds of thousands of school supply kits to the troops in Iraq. It was called Operation Iraqi Children. And to, from 2004 to 2013, we were shipping hundreds of thousands of supplies to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Djibouti, to we sent them down to Haiti after the earthquake. I mean, we're, we were doing a lot of stuff. And I, I just I couldn't do enough. I, I, I always wanted to do more. And it was it was it was my way of just being a part of helping people through that, that experience. And I felt fear for my kids and everything, Jack. And I, I just, I just wanted to do something positive and all it all rolled into, you know, supporting multiple military and nonprofits out there, uh, maybe 25 or 30 of them, 
I felt this was a way that I could, if I could help all these nonprofits, they could help more people and mm -hmm. we raise more money for them and, you know, get more done, help, help a lot more people. And all that rolled into the creation of the Gary Sinise Foundation in 2011 when I launched my own foundation. And, uh, you know, had I not worked with all those other nonprofits, seen all, all their work, seen what they'd done, all that, maybe I wouldn't have started the foundation. But I, I, I really realized at that time that this is where I'm going. I'm in this game for good. I want to have a foundation. I want people to know I'm serious. Uh, and I want them to know that you know, people would always ask me, where should I send a donation? Who should I give it to? And and if you look at the mission of the Gary Sinise Foundation, we're all over the place. We're building houses for wounded folks. We're doing stuff for Gold Star families. We're in the first responder space. I mean, we're we're kind of all over. And that's that's simply because that's what I was doing before I had the foundation. So now people send their donations to the Gary Sinise Foundation. We can deploy those resources all over the place and do, and do a lot of great things. I mean, it's incredible what you've done. And it's a, it's such an inspiration for everyone, not just, uh, not just in this space for lack of a better word, but life in general, uh, the difference that one person can make, uh, and building these teams and doing what you, what you've done for, for veterans, uh, throughout your life. And now with the Gary Sinise foundation, it's just, it's inspiring. It's astounding. Uh, I thank you, um, for all that you've done for your inspiration. Um, it's just, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And thanks for serving our country, bud. And, and uh, thanks to all your buddies who might still be out there doing the job. Yeah. Uh, please, please give them my best. The Gary Sinise foundation is here, here for, for you and your families. And, you know, there's multiple, I mean, you know how many nonprofits there are in, in the military and veterans space out there. And we're just one of them, but uh, I put my name on the foundation and that, I, you know, why would you do that? <laughs> you know, if you weren't going to back up, you know, put your money where your mouth is and back up. So I want people to realize that the Gary Sinise Foundation is a reliable, trusted means to support the people who defend our country and protect our cities. That's, that's what we do. We, we're there for them and their families. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a great, great feeling to know that we can help. We've we've built a lot of houses. We've done a lot of things for people. Uh, it's all with the generous support of the American people who send us their donations. They don't have to do it. There's multiple charities you can send your stuff to. When they send them to us, I want them to know that we're going to do good things with that that generosity. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. No, thank you for, for all you've done. Uh, my daughter and I took World War II veterans back to Pearl Harbor and then to Normandy this past year. And it was life-changing for her. She's uh, uh, 17 now and having those touch points with the greatest generation who uh, a lot of them have passed away since we took them back to Pearl Harbor and to, to Normandy this last year. Um, but for her to have that touch point, that's just not in a book. So people can volunteer. They, uh, if they don't have money to send, there's volunteer work that they can do. And it's, uh, it's just amazing. So for sure, yeah, Gary Foundation. You, can I ask you something? Have yeah. you, um, you know about our Soaring Valor program, speaking of World War II veterans? No, I don't think so. If you go on our website, go to our YouTube channel. That's, that's a great channel to go through because mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to meet tons of people that we're supporting. But one of our programs, one of our initiatives is called Soaring Valor. And uh, have you been to the World War II Museum in New Orleans? I haven't been yet. 
Okay, so the National World War II Museum, I've had a great relationship with them uh, for 15 years, whatever it is. I, I narrate some content yeah, I saw that. At, at the museum and all that. Well, I've had the great privilege to travel uh, at least 15 times. My foundation has done many trips. I, I've been personally on at least 15 of them. Charter airplanes that are provided by American Airlines, who supports uh, a lot of the things that I'm doing uh, by providing uh, free travel support. We've taken hundreds of World War II veterans to the National World War II Museum, recorded them on video. You know, we took a, you know a whole bunch of them to the 75th anniversary at Pearl Harbor. We, you know, I mean, just a ton of great stuff. So. The Soaring Valor videos on our YouTube channel, on the website are very moving. And one of the programs that we have also with the World War II veterans is that we pair them up with high school students, just like your Amazing. daughter. Amazing. And you can be a high school student and your travel buddy for three days is a guy that went through the Battle of the Bulge or whatever, or Incredible. was on Okinawa or whatever. And you sit next to that person on the plane and you travel with them and you go to the museum with them and you get to know them. And so many of these kids' lives are completely and totally changed yep. after spending that kind of time. So I encourage you to look at our Soaring Valor program. It's It, it started because I have this great relationship with the National World Museum, but kind of in, in honor of my Uncle Jack mm. uh, and Uncle Jerry, both who served in World War II, and uh, my uncle Jerry died in, in the 90s, but my uncle Jack lived to be 90 wow. and died in 2014. And I sent him down to the World War II Museum and they recorded him on video and all that stuff. And when he passed away, I I called the museum. I said, I, I want a copy of that video that he did. But also, what can I do to help other families get these videos? You know, they have mm. a video of their of their World War II hero. These are so yeah. vital. And important and so we fund some of their historians at the museum Amazing. to travel around the country and go film these guys though and and then we also continue to bring them as many as possible to the national world war ii museum we took a, a veterans day trip we took a big group of world war ii veterans down there you know the youngest guy was probably 94 yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. and the oldest was 106 or something like that yeah. i mean it was crazy it's amazing. There's a great video of you on there. It's uh, on the, the YouTube channel um, for the Gary Sinise Foundation. There's a great one where you're thanking a World War II veteran in a wheelchair. And he says, I wish I could have done more. It's like, oh, yeah. That was, at the, uh, that was at the 75th anniversary. I was the Grand Marshal of the, of the 75th anniversary Pearl Harbor uh, parade mm. there. And I, you know, I was on the trip with, we probably had, I don't know. We had over maybe 70 World War II veterans on that trip with us. Amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Life-changing for my daughter. Uh, and some of those guys, uh, like one guy was first out of his stick over Normandy uh, on D-Day and uh, parachuted in and fought his way through the Battle of the Bulge all the way to Berlin. And he just passed away this last uh, last November or so. In early December, we went out to his memorial service in Coronado, uh, California, where um, where she grew up a lot of her her life. So we got to go to our old house and sit in this memorial uh, for him. And uh, it was incredible. I mean, so moving to, to see her life changed uh, out of respect for what that generation sacrificed so we could have these options and opportunities that we do in this country 
today. So learning that history and having a touch point with it is so important uh, for the future of the nation. Um, because yeah. I think once you appreciate that sacrifice, maybe you look at things through a different, a little bit different lens out of respect for what was sacrificed for you. Um, so I think it's uh, vitally important. So I'm so glad that you guys are, are doing that. Um, and you've done so much for this nation and, um, man, what's ahead on the Hollywood front since I have you, I've already <laughs> kept you over the time I said I would, but, uh, what, oh, no, what else good. is happening? I'm good. Uh, here, I just want to recommend a great father daughter trip. Take her down to the National World War II Museum. I'm gonna do it's it. remarkable. And you need to give yourself a few days because there's so much to see there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, I highly recommend it. I think, you know, sounds like she would really get a lot out of that. Yeah. And it's very, very impressive. Yeah. Uh, Hollywood front. Yeah, or anything else. What's what's I, next on the list? I know you got the move coming up, and uh, what else do you have going on? I mean, this, the foundation. Yeah, I, I can only imagine how much this time this foundation uh, it takes because you are so involved and done so much, and it's uh, it's incredible. You, like I don't know if you ever sleep, but uh, <laughs> but if you do, it's not for long. You're not getting much. I, I'll tell you, um, I'm I'm primarily focused on uh, just supporting the foundation. I can't I can't do the kind of traveling that I, I, I did before right now, just need to be home more. Um, but I'm still playing concerts. Like I said, we, we did we did one for uh, the Naval Air Station here on Saturday and we were at the Coast Guard base in Long Beach on Sunday. Uh, we've got some stuff coming up every month. I'm trying to get out a little bit. I'm, I'm not if you look at that service history page, I'm not doing that now. <laughs> I, can't, I can't go all over the place like that. And movie-wise and TV-wise, uh, TV show-wise, I'm I'm not really focused on that uh, right now. I want to get get moved to Tennessee mm-hmm. and all that. But I do have one project that uh, currently I'm executive producer on, and it's based on a true story. Uh, you'll know this story, Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam Brown's story. Yeah. You know the book Fearless? I got it right here. I didn't know if it was uh, we could talk about it or not. But hey, well, uh, I, got, I got it right up here, too. <laughs> there it is. Oh, yeah, there it is right there. Yep. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right there. So this one, let's see. This one was given to me way back when oh, by wow. Kelly, Kelly Brown. That's amazing. Cause I, mine's Kelly, too. Awesome, uh, bud. Yeah, Kelly. And then the kids right there. Nathan Savannah. Savannah right there. Yeah. Um, so Kelly gave me this at, at one of our events for our snowball uh, express program, which is the families of our fallen heroes. Yeah. And um, we take care of the, these kids. We have, you know, every year we'll take over a thousand kids at Disney world. It's one of our big programs for gold star families. And uh, we used to do it in Dallas. And when I was there in Dallas, I played for the kids with my band every year. And backstage, Kelly came up to me and, and introduced herself. I met the kids and, and she gave me this book. I read it. I loved it. Um, it's very powerful it is. Uh, book. And uh, I always hoped somewhere that, you know, it would be something that I could do as a director or something. But I realized you know, I'm probably not going to get it done, but I know two guys I think are perfect for it. And they're buddies of mine, uh, Andrew and John Irwin. They just had a movie. Uh, um, one of their movies is out right now called Jesus Revolution. And uh, they made another movie called American Underdog. that was out last year with Zach Levi um, and Anna Paquin. And um, 
I did one of their movies called I Still Believe. Um, anyway, I thought they would be perfect for the movie. They have a deal at Lionsgate. They went and got the rights for it. And uh, their, uh, uh, Jason Hall, who did uh, American Sniper, mm -hmm. wrote that, is writing the script for Fearless right now. Incredible. And uh, I'm an executive, uh, one of the executive producers on it. Maybe I'll play a little part in it. Who knows? I don't yeah. know what, uh, what the guys are going to want me to do, but <laughs> I thought they would be perfect for it. And so that that's probably, that's the only thing in the pipeline right now for me. Amazing. I mean, I gave uh, uh, a hall, a tour of buds right before I got out of the, the military when he was doing American sniper. So I took him around. Uh, he needed but... to see that. Yes. <laughs> you've seen it. I know you've been down there. Uh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> love it. Love it there. Yeah. Not you a bad spot. Bill I think I asked you, do you know Bill Wilson? Yes. Yes. He was uh, in charge of buds when I was, uh, when I was there. Uh, on my well, way he was, yeah, that's when that's, that's when they they showed me around. I think you know it was one of my trips down there, and yeah. I I met Bill and yeah I got to I got to go to the end of Hell Week one one time, which was pretty good because you know the guys are delirious at that point. Oh you know? yes, <laughs> I'm familiar. They, they come running up from the beach and they plow down, and you know how everybody stands there on that burn, yeah. right? And they run up and fall down, and they're all looking and. I, I knew they had to be thinking they were seeing things. <laughs> You're hallucinating Lieutenant, at that point. Lieutenant yeah. Dan? That's right. <laughs> What's Lieutenant Dan doing uh, here? He must be seeing things. Yep. But it was great. And then I went back uh, the following year and saw that class graduate, oh, which was cool. It was fantastic. Very cool. Oh, See, you guys, you guys are awesome. Oh well, now, I mean, thank you for everything you've done for for uh, for veterans across all the services, and uh, for everybody out there. Yeah, fearless Eric Blem, incredible story. This is the book that I recommend when people say, "What Navy SEAL book should I read?" And this is the one that I that I point them to. So um, people should definitely check out Fearless. I cannot wait to see it um, become a film. That's going to be very moving, having known Adam personally. And then for sure, get this. I mean, I love Grateful American. I love that title, and this is an incredible story, not just for people interested in Hollywood and for your work with the veteran community, um, but people that are looking for a little inspiration out there. Um, there's a lot of people looking for that right now. So uh, check this out. It's an amazing story. Thank you for all you know. Thank you for spending so much time with uh, with me today. I, I, it was such an honor. Thank you I so much. It, it was so thank, cool. Thank you for having me, bud. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and hope we can link up I'm at uh, some point in the future. I'm a big fan. I mean, the uh, fact that you like my book, having written all these books yourself, <laughs> that, that means a lot to me, and I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll link up in uh, in person soon. I, I hope so. Let's let's make a point of it. Sounds great. Sounds great. Thank you again. Take care. God bless. You too. Bye-bye. Danger Close is presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union could help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you can start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit like $50 for an easy start certificate. Add money at any time and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal's savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. If you're saving for a down payment on a new car, you may need an auto loan at a great rate. Navy Federal is there too. Applying is easy. You can do all of it on their mobile app, online, or by phone. And it's so fast, you can get a decision in seconds. 
Plus, with their car buying service powered by TrueCar, you can shop, compare, and get upfront pricing on your next new or used car. Find out more at NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, open to armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. Credit and collateral subject for approval, rates subject to change, and are based on credit worthiness. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply. This is Jack Carr, and I want to talk about the Magpul DACA Grid Organizer. You can see it right here in this Pelican case. And if you're checking out the rifles, you might recognize them from my novels right here. This is a Galil from my last novel, In the Blood. And down here is an AK clone. It's a clone of a Tabuk Iraqi AK built by Jim Fuller of Fuller Phoenix. And James Reese uses that in the final chapters of The Devil's Hand. All right. The Magpul DACA grid organizer, specifically designed to fit two of Pelican's most popular hard gun cases, with more fitments coming soon. Magpul's DACA grid organizer is a simple drop-in storage system that allows for endless customization. The EPP grid base was designed to fit perfectly in each Pelican case and comes with a set of grid blocks that can be organized to brace and secure rifles, magazines, optics, accessories, and other gear right there. The lightweight EPP blocks provide advanced protection and eliminate shifting of gear during transport. The overall result is better impact resistance and stronger protection for your gear than you'll get from other foam options. Offering numerous advantages over traditional foam or expensive laser cut inserts, the DACA grid organizer provides intuitive modular organization at your fingertips. The system can be completely reconfigured without tools or additional cutting. With quick and easy adjustments, the DACA blocks, you can maximize the case's storage capacity and capability each time it's used. The grid's EPP construction provides resistance to chemical intrusion and damage, and cleanup of any dirt or liquids is easy with a damp cloth. Simple to configure, the DACA grid organizer lets you use every inch of the case to store and secure your gear the way you want. Use code DANGERCLOSE at magpul.com, and that's M-A-G-P-U-L.com, to receive $10 off your order of $100 or more. Offer valid only at magpul.com. Enter code in your cart and look for the apply discount code link in checkout. Cannot be combined with other offers. Once again, use code DANGERCLOSE, D-A-N-G-E-R-C-L-O-S-E, at magpul.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Grab a can of Black Rifle Coffee's ready-to-drink, the perfect balance of quality and convenience. If you want a Spartan-level caffeine kick, try Ready to Drink 300, available in salted caramel, vanilla balm, and more. Made with an electrifying blend of MCT oil and amino acids, Ready to Drink 300 packs a caffeine punch that'll supercharge your day. Ready to Drink is perfect if you need your coffee quick, and shopping with Black Rifle Coffee helps give back to the veterans and first responders who serve our nation. You can stock up on cans at blackriflecoffee.com or grab an ice-cold can at a convenience store near you. You can stock up at blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code DANGERCLOSE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash DangerClose for 20% off. 
Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, Hooten Young right here. Of course, this is Tim Young, Norm Hooten. Norm Hooten played by Eric Bana in the movie Black Hawk Down, veteran-owned and operated. Check out their whiskey, their cigars. Love what they're doing, hootenyoung.com. All right, Protect. That's P-R-O-T-E-K-T. Started by my buddy Nick Norris. We were in the SEAL teams together. He's been on the podcast before. This is their rest right here, and I'll just read this. Good sleep is the ultimate performance enhancer. Augment your nighttime routine with Protect Rest for an infusion of plant-based ingredients to help you get the rest and recovery that you need. And they come right here in these liquid packs. You just tear them open right here, put them in some water, and they taste delicious as well as being healthy. So be sure and check them out, protect.com. And then this, Hang Six. So company in the UK, they sent this over. Thank you guys so much. This packaging is legit right here. So I opened this up and right there, another package inside and it's really cool. Check this out. They've made some jewelry here for me. And one is um, for a necklace and they put the cross tomahawks on there. I don't know if you can see it if you zoom in right there, but uh, really cool, really well made. And check that out right there. Cross tomahawks right there as well. So check them out. And on the card here, here's what it says here. Resilience. This piece represents a step forward, an onward journey of self-discovery and the forging of a deeper inner resilience. We all need a little nudge now and then, a reminder that during tough times that we can be grounded see from all angles, find a way to navigate through, and just feel whole and settled again. Hopefully this piece will provide that reminder. And you can go to hang, H-A-N-G, 6.co.uk. So thank you guys so much. Sincerely appreciate that. The packaging on this was serious. So love you guys have going on, and uh, sincerely appreciate the kind gift. Uh, all right, Christensen Arms, right here. So check this thing out right here. Um, 300 PRC. This is their MPR rifle right here. And I'm looking forward to getting an optic on this thing and giving it a run. So thank you guys. Christensen Arms. Check them out. They're making some very cool stuff right here in Utah. Christensen Arms. Awesome. All right. Take care out there. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast. An Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves on May 16th and is available for pre-order right now. Be sure to check out Gary's book, Grateful American, wherever books are sold. And go to GarySiniceFoundation.org to check out everything he has going on with his foundation. Link to the social channels. Check out that YouTube channel. It's an amazing organization. Please consider giving if you are able. Follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can go to the upper right-hand corner, click on shop for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.